Who are you? Bond, James Bond. We all feel better. We all feel better in the dark. In the dark. <laughs> kick your ass! And say, since he's my friend, I'll have to kick your ass too. So you first, know. you give us this stupid Poughkeepsie tape yeah, I mean, yeah. bullshit ripoff because he's my boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Check it. Let me tell you about these two dudes from Brooklyn You won't view movies the same way again Every two weeks you get something new And hate it or love it, they break it down for you Tom DJ and Derek Ferguson Been writing for years, got respect from the peers Watch these movies for all benefit Don't watch it Halloween, love Tom rather spit How about a couple musicals or maybe Dennis Quaid Or Tom's on a rant, directors being afraid Episodes classic, don't get it twisted And from the start, these two have been gifted Tom loves Kristen and Derek loves Pam Tom hates heroes and Derek can't stand Remake some movies that don't need remade Watch out studios, they won't be played So give it up for T and give it up for D Coolest guys from Brooklyn this side of Jay-Z My name's B hyphen and it's time to start Cause we all feel better, better, better in the dark Before you know it, you have an entire podcast. Okay. Okay. Who's that? Well, that's a very bad impersonation of Robert Davi in oh, Life of the Kill. Oh, that's Robert Davi. That, okay. I'm sorry, I should have done more of the Spanish accent. Yeah, because he's playing a Latin American. And in fact, he, in that one. he mentions in uh, one of the interviews that I listened to in preparation for the show mm-hmm. that he learned his dialogue first in Colombian, then had it translated back into English. So that he would retain the Colombian phraseology. And the listeners are going, what the hell is going on here? Well, if they've been paying attention to our series of reviews on James Bond, which we've called Guilt Edge Bonds, right. they should have guessed by now, or they know that we are finally up to the Timothy the Dalton. The great man himself. The Timothy Dalton James Bond films. And I'm going to be right up front here in saying what I've said many times before. This is my favorite Bond bar nut. What happened to Sean Connery? He can kick Sean Connery's ass. Oh, get out of here. Even Sean Connery said, that's a good choice. Yeah, well, him and Roger Moore, who were the previous Mm -hmm. Bonds. George Lazenby, nobody bothered to ask him his opinion. Because, frankly, nobody Because he was too busy in Australia getting drunk. But both Sean Connery and Roger Moore said this guy's a great choice. Moore was gracious enough to host an American TV special introducing Timothy Dalton to the world. As far back as when Sean Connery left the first Mm -hmm. time, Albert Broccoli had reached out to Timothy Dalton to play Mm -hmm. James Bond. But Dalton felt that he was was too too young young. at the time. He was 25 years old at the time. And also Roger Moore. I think Broccoli had a short list of about five or six actors Mm -hmm. that he always went back to when somebody left and said, okay, do you... The two of them, John Gavin, who actually had been hired for Diamonds Are Forever. For Diamonds Are Forever, yeah. He had signed and everything. But we should probably introduce ourselves. I'm Tom DJ. 
fan, I'm Derek Ferguson. And in case you didn't know by now, you are listening to Better in the Dark. We're in the downward slope now of the Bond series. Well, downward in terms of numbers, not in quality. Not in quality. Oh, no, especially not when we're talking about not the films we're about to talk about. Now we've got Dalton, and then it's going to be... Two uh, episodes two of Pierce Brosnan. Pierce Brosnan. Our episode of Daniel Craig. And one episode with Daniel Craig. And, and that's it. Yeah, then we'll start work on the supplementary work, if you will. And we're going to do a couple of one-off episodes on the various rivals of Bond. Right. Including my favorite, James Coburn as Derek, Derek Flint. Flint. We're going to cover Derek Flint. We're going to cover Matt Helm. Matt Helm. I've actually sat through all four of those films for you. I expect recompense. And I saw a very interesting movie from that period okay. also that I think kind of fits into it. Have you uh-huh. ever seen Fathom with Raquel Welch? We've talked about that. Yeah. When yeah. we talked about a certain actress who thinks she's Raquel Welch. Right. Because it's around that same time period, and it's kind of got a spy Maybe we plot. can dr- throw that in when we talk about Modesty Blaze. Right. only were the two films and the long-forgotten TV pilot with Andrew Kell. So that's going to be a very nice episode right there. Right. So we're going to be talking about Timothy Dalton and his two films. But before that, we got some listener mail. Okay. And we got a very, very... Very big announcement to make. I'm sure you don't want to throw one more very in there. Very. There you go. Okay, so let's start with the viewer mail. A lot of praise for our Dario Argento episode. Yeah, I got some private emails from people that were thanking me and you, of course. Where they were saying that they didn't even know those Argento mm-hmm. movies existed. Which I didn't know a couple of them existed either. If we can inform you and turn you on to good movies that you haven't seen before, then our work is not in vain. Our first email is from Steve Holitz. How you doing, Steve? Who is the host under the name Bonehand of the Bone Bat Show. Okay. Awesome. Gave it a listen and really enjoyed it. You guys have a great rapport. I'll be adding you to my weekly listens. Ooh, that's nice. I'm kind of bummed, though, as coincidentally I ordered the Argento box last week online, and it'll be arriving any time. Too bad three of the movies are filler. I should have listened to Better in the Dark first. Thanks, Tom. Keep up the great work, Steve. Ah, okay. That's well, first off, welcome, Steve. He actually joined our message board as well. Yeah, I've seen the, the what is it, Bonehand? Bonehand, Yeah, yes. I've seen that pop up on the And if you want to join the message board, and you probably want to join now before that big announcement we're about to make yeah, goes into effect. If you haven't jumped on the bandwagon yet, you, you better get on board right now. Just get on betterinthedark.proboards.com, sign up, it doesn't cost a thing, and it's lots of fun, and you get to hear me go crazy, and... Derek's always putting up little bits of movie news and reviews, and everybody else is going nuts. Yeah, we just have a good time there. And sorry that you bought the thing before you listened to us. (laughs) I wish we could have warned you ahead of time. That was Steve. We got another Argento episode comment from Joel Jenkins, our good friend, Ah. and our peer at... PulpWorksPress.com. Derek and Tom, your comments about some artists improving their art when given restrictions to work within, but Dario Argento not being one of them, (laughs) made me think of David Lynch, whose work on the Twin Peaks TV show was fascinating and actually had some semblance of a plot. Many of his movies, however, tend to be wild flights of fragmented events which don't fit into a cohesive story, or make any sense for that matter. In comparing his movies to his TV output... I think that perhaps he's one of those artists who works better when given a framework and guidelines. That's a good point, Joe. Yeah, yeah. Although I have to admit, much like as we've talked about Argento being like juggling water, some of Lynch's films, like Lost Highway, oh my God, work. I think because 
it's got that weird dreamlike. I've seen Lost Highway two mm-hmm. or three times, and if you ask me to logically explain the plot, right. I couldn't do it. If you put a gun to my head and said, mm-hmm. Derek, explain this plot, you have to pull the trigger. It's a fascinating film to watch. Most Lynch films, with the exception of Blue Velvet. Now, of course, that one. Right. That was, I don't know if I ever told this story. Yeah, well, when I first saw Blue Velvet, I saw it in the theaters. After not having slept for three days. Oh, wow. Well, you were right then for <laughs> a David Lynch movie. To say that it preyed upon my own paranoia is an understatement. After well, three days of no sleep, you could have probably watched a Tom and Jerry cartoon, <laughs> and that would have preyed on your paranoia. The person I went to see it with has claimed that as we walked home, I constantly stopped and looked up at the roofs of the various buildings along 2nd Avenue, convinced that somebody was watching us. Because I was very, very, very loopy at that time. Yeah, that's a freaked out movie. Even Isabella Rossellini, I saw mm-hmm. an interview with her recently, and she even said that playing that role freaked her out. Some of the things that she had to do, that movie freaked her out. Now, I want to see this other one that everybody is raving about. They said that's a good one. Mulholland Drive. Mulholland Drive. Yeah, which originally started out as another TV series, but it wasn't picked up, so Lynch reworked it as. Yeah. And that one apparently is another one of these weird, dreamlike. Because you've got these two female characters who could be iterations of the same person. Yeah. Maybe are two separate people. It's very strange. Yeah. I've never seen it, but I want to. But yeah, Twin Peaks. It was made, what, 20-something years ago? And it's still remains. For me, that's like the scariest thing I've ever seen on TV. I do kind of think they should have stopped after they resolved the Laura Palmer storyline. Yeah. I mean, it was still fascinating after that, but you could tell that they were more or less making it up as they They went along. But that, I think, is the problem with a lot of these shows which have this kind of set goal. Mm-hmm. Once you achieve that goal, what do you do? What do you do next? Right. It's kind of like how Heroes are self-destructed. Right. I think if it had ended after that first Well, keep season. in mind that the original, as much as I can't stand this man, the, the, his original remit was that there was no set cast. Yeah, that, right. If you remember, he was telling people that people could die at any time and they'd be replaced by new characters. Right, or people were just going to leave. They even know, had yeah. that whole idea for the summer show called Origins, Origins, where they would have the little mini-movies by big-name directors, and Mm -hmm. you would get to vote on which character, character, and then they would become regular. Exactly. Of course, we know what happened. The show became popular. NBC said no. no, Yeah, yeah, NBC said no, we like these people, we want to keep them. And in the case of Origins, what happened was the writer's strike killed it dead. Yeah. Before I go back to the viewer mail, because we're now getting to something that's asking us about the future, I do want to get to a comment made on our Potomatic board. Go right John S. Drew about our episode covering Spike Lee. Go right on in. Which, as you know, featured our good friend, the maestro of hip-hop, Mr. Kellen B. Conley. John wrote, All right, I was excited by the fact that Kalen was involved in the episode, but add to the fact that he's talking about Sasha Gray and you have podcast gold. Mm. Which makes me wonder, do we need more porn stars on this show? You know something? <laughs> You cannot never have enough porn stars, Tom. (laughs) You can never have enough porn stars. That's only the second time we've mentioned a porn star on this show. The other one was when we talked about Katie Morgan. Okay. On that review episode where we covered. Because I tell you right now, if I could work in a reference to Vanessa Del Rio in every episode, (laughs) I'd do it. (laughs) Kind of like the way I try to work in Kristen Bell every episode. You talk about porn stars. I have one more piece of viewer mail for our announcement. It is from our good friend Eric Frome, who 
manages those message boards at betterinthedark.pro. And does a superb job of it, I might add. And he writes to us any clue as to what the Halloween special is about. No, your damn business. Derek promised us Nightmare on Elm Street, and I'm holding him to it. My mother-in-law grudgingly bought me the whole set three years ago for a Christmas gift. I really dig that series a lot. It's the only horror series I even care to watch. Like Derek, horror doesn't do much for me because everybody in them are so damn stupid. Them getting killed off almost does the gene pool a favor. But Nightmare on Elm Street was different. They all fought back in their own ways, even if their chances of success were the same as fighting a steamroller with a teaspoon. And the concept of the series was fantastic. Who couldn't relate to nightmares? Anyway, just figured I'd drop a line. Eric. Always good to hear from Eric. So, what do we got planned for Halloween? Okay, some of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies I own, and other ones I'm going to rent from Netflix. And I'm going to start doing the research because we're going to be recording the Halloween episodes in September. September. The way things are going, just to give people an idea, a little click behind the curtain, here's what's going on. Our August recording session will be spent with our good friend Michael Bailey of Views from the Long Box. We're going to be finally doing that long-promise Superman at the Movies. It's going to be two episodes. One covering the television and one covering the movie appearances of the Man of Steel. What we need to do is stop promising now. (laughs) That's pretty much it. (laughs) Then in September, we'll be doing the October recording. We will be doing our annual Obscure Horror Film Recommendation Program for that Halloween weekend. Mm -hmm. I still have not heard back yet from a person we're hoping to get as a guest who is a major horror writer who wants to come on and talk about an independent film that we've both seen, which is unlike any other film you've ever seen before. And is that an understatement? Oh, yeah. Trust me on this, folks. (laughs) I'm fighting to keep from mentioning even the title of it, but this is a horror movie totally unlike any you've ever seen seen before. before. <laughs> and he is going to talk about his experiences bringing this novella to screen. And I cannot wait to talk to this cat because I want to know where he got <laughs> the idea. I, I've interviewed him before. He's a really cool guy. I'm sure he is. And we're going to ask him to talk about some. Of Just his don't invite problems. him to dinner. Yeah, <laughs> or to meet your sister. Oh hell no, <laughs> hell. Once we have that firmed up, we'll be able to announce it, but this guy is a major cult phenomenon. If that falls through, we have some other ideas. We talked about maybe doing a couple of mini-episodes throughout the month about one horror film that maybe you should see. I already know what my three films are going to be. Well, of course you do. In fact, we t- I've told you what they are already. Because you're the man. Yes. So, is it time? Oh, oh, to make the big announcement? To make the big announcement. All right. Hold on a minute. Drum roll. <laughs> Folks, sit down, put your ear a little bit closer to the speaker while my partner and good friend talks. Tom, make the announcement. I know a lot of you people have made note of the fact that we've had a lot of problems with Podomatic lately. Boo. Because Podomatic sucks ass. Boo. Originally, the plan was we were going to transfer over to Lipson. However, as you know, we have had a very long and fruitful relationship with a group of podcasters called the Earth2.net Network. Which we've mentioned on just about every, much every episode. Every episode we've mentioned them. They frequently publicize us. They've written a lot of listener mail. We've had one of the hosts of In fact, Des Reddick. Des Reddick. He gets In- hosted on one of ours. His and son is our junior correspondent. In fact, his son isn't a part of every episode these days. Yeah. Well, we are moving. 
Because we got a very generous so offer from, from Michael David Sims. Yeah, give him credit. Let's go. Michael has very kindly offered to set up a bedroom in the Earth2.net home and let us jump on the furniture. So starting August 30th, which we hope is going to be the first part of the Superman episodes. Yeah. You'll be able to find us at Earth2.net. Along with, of course, all the other wonderful podcasts that we have talked about in the past. Dread Media, the Earth2.net podcast, Bigger on the Inside, For Your Ears Only. All of that great stuff. What this means is we're not going to have to worry about bandwidth anymore. You're no longer have to go, like some of you have had to do, to the Internet Archive site for the alternate feed. You're going to have a lot more support. We're going to have our own email addresses and such. Also, DJ Commerce Cavalcade is moving there with it. This is, I think, a great thing for all of us. Yeah. Tom and I, we sat down and we really talked about this for a long time before doing this because this is a major it's jump. It's a major step. It's a major step for us in terms of the fact that we've been used to doing this on our own. So now we're going to be working in concert with other people to make not only our podcast better and get the word out to more people, but we'll also be working with them and getting the word out about their podcast. Fair, it's not like we haven't been working with them before. We had Des on. We're going to have Des on again. Yeah. We already talked to Michael before he proposed this merger mm-hmm. about coming on and guesting an episode. Yeah. And like Tom said, we're going to get more bandwidth yeah. with this. That's not going to be a problem anymore. You also, know. Michael has talked about finally getting some merchandise up and running, which is something I know some of you guys have been waiting for. I think this is a win-win situation. The only thing that Michael has asked us is to adjust our schedule a little bit. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. The weeks when his podcast is it up will be up. Basically, every Sunday, if you don't see it better in the dark, you'll see it bigger on the inside, which is, of course, Michael and Dan Tolan's attempt to review Every single Doctor Who episode ever made. Mad Men, I tell ya! It's not like we have other Mad Men. Michael Bailey and a friend of his are doing From Crisis to Crisis, which is available through the Superman homepage. And they're attempting to review every Superman book month by month. Mad Men, I tell ya! Between the end of Crisis... And the beginning of Infinite Crisis. They estimate that's going to take them five years. And they've been really good so far. They're only up to June of 87. Well, you know what they say. If you shoot for the moon and don't make it, you're still landing the stars. That's the big announcement, folks. We hope that you'll be excited about it as we right. are. Because, of course, this means our audience is going to expand even more. Hopefully. Yeah, we looked at some of these hits. Granted, we're bringing a nice big audience, too. But I think that the audience together is going to be off the chain we're gonna blow up big time so anyway and hopefully this means we'll be able to get some legitimate stars on this show maybe we can convince tim thomerson to come and sit with us for a while but that's the news mark it down your calendar august 30th don't worry we'll be reminding you as always Mm. uh, every episode give them the address of earth2.net right now so Uh, it's very simple you've already said www.earth hyphen two dot net. There you go. So you can start checking out right now before yeah. we get there and you see what they have available to offer. Because well, I'm telling you, the content over there is absolutely wonderful. And we forgot it's to mention, of course, my all-time favorite is World's Finest. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which World's is, of Finest. course, once again, another project where Michael is trying to review every single Bruce Tim-related DC Animated Universe cartoon ever made. So if you're a movie geek, a science fiction geek, mm-hmm. TV, Earth2.net, that's yes. going to be the place... To be. 
And they're letting us bring our chainsaws. Now that we're done, right here, right now, <laughs> there is no other place I like to be. Okay, so what are we doing now? We're now off to talk about a great, great, great man. Da 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 da. He played a great, great, great man for two films and did not kill the franchise. You guys are going to get learned today. It's Timothy Dalton. He's James Bond. He's a real hard ass. That's Timothy Dalton. He's James Bond. Okay, he'll kick you in the balls. Time to get serious. At least as serious as we ever get around here. So the year is 1987. Little bit of an interesting cloak and dagger leading up to this film. After Roger Moore announced, because he saw the Larry on the wall, that he was retiring from James Well, by Bond. now he's pushing down to 70. Yeah, 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 he's, he's in the 60s. And he actually tried to quit two yeah. pictures early, but they kept backing up these truckloads of money. Well, remember, there's a difference between Roger Moore doing the great dance of the I'm gonna retire. I'm gonna retire unless you give me more money. Right. And realizing, oh shit, I'm really embarrassing myself. I'm going to go away. Cuphead Bercoli at this point, his health is really declining. More and more of the day-to-day decisions are being made by his daughter, his daughter, Barbara, his wife, Dana, and his stepson, Michael J. Wilson. Originally, the choice for James Bond was one Pierce Brosnan, who Bercoli was impressed with, Partially because he was recommended by Brosnan's wife, Cassandra Harris, Mm -hmm. who played Liesl in For Your Eyes Only. For Your Eyes Only, right. She was the countess that got killed on the beach. But also because he was impressed with the way he carried himself on a show called Remington Steel, which had been canceled. Yes, it did. They did the tests. They started writing the script. And then all this publicity started coming up. Oh, Pierce Brosnan's going to be James Bond. Pierce Brosnan's going to be James Bond. And NBC said, hmm, we can use this publicity and uncanceled Remington Steel. There was a little clause buried somewhere in his contract that they activated. And they said, okay, well, you got to come back and do it. Come and see the guy who would have been James Bond. Yeah, for free. But didn't the same thing happen to Tom Selleck with Raiders of the Lost Ark? Yes, I think that was the case. He was signed for it. Magnum was canceled because Magnum got killed in the last episode. And they brought him back to life. They did the same thing to Tom Selleck. They reactivated the clause in his contract. Allison Ford got the part in his. Was made. Right. With them losing Brosnan, Broccoli and his little brain trust started brainstorming and decided to go back in time to somebody that they offered the job to in 1969. Right. One Timothy Dalton. Now, Timothy Dalton turned down the job back in 69. He would have been in uh, Her Majesty's Secret, Majesty Service. Secret Service. Because at the time, he was barely in his 20s. And he felt that James Bond needed to be played by an older man. Right. Who had more experience. That was no longer the case. And they even offered, after Sean Connery, when he came back for Divers Are Forever, and left, they offered it to Dalton right. again. Because as we were talking about earlier, Broccoli had a list of about five, six actors that he always went back to when he needed a well, new Bond and said, well, well, do you want to play the role now? Do you we like play? to bring up, time and again, is how loyal Cubby Broccoli was. Yeah. You listen to some of the commentaries on these films, mm-hmm. and you hear the same thing over and over again. How, if you did a Bond film and they liked you, they found ways to bring you back. Bring you back, again exactly. Again and yeah. again and again. There was always a family atmosphere on these shoots. So he said, okay, Timothy Dalton. At first, Dalton almost turned it down because mm. he was tied up in filming a little movie called Brenda Starr. Ah, the infamous Brenda Starr. But Brooke Shields. But there was a little delay. By the time it was resolved, he was available and agreed to become the fourth James Bond. And in my opinion, the best. 
Okay. One of the things you're going to see in both of these films is that Dalton was very serious. I mean, he's a Shakespearean trained actor. He's very, yeah, yeah. very serious in his craft. So the first thing he did when he was signed was he went back and read every, and read si- every single Ian Fleming. Right. Everything Ian Fleming wrote about James because Bond, he read. He said to Cubby, I want to make sure that my Bond is recognizable as the Bond of the books. And boy, howdy is it. Much as I love Sean Connery, which Sean Connery is like in a class by mm-hmm. himself, it's kind of fa- unfair. Sean Connery's portrayal of James Bond is so iconic. But when it comes to Timothy Dalton, as you and I have discussed this many times, if you've read any of there, and I'm sorry I'm going to have to say this, but a lot of you only know James Bond from the movie, and you only know Roger Moore. A lot of you nearly need to go and read the novel. Novels. If you've read any of Ian Fleming's novels, that's Timothy Dalton. Right. And you can tell by the way that he plays it that he read the books. And I think also it inspired Broccoli and later on his daughter and stepson to write movies that are closer in tone to the books. Well, it played to Dalton's strength. That's He's a Shakespearean right. trained actor. And He's only been in two movies. But if I was stuck on a deserted island right. and you told me, well, Dirt, you can only take either... The two Dalton movies or the seven Roger Moore movies. I'll take the two right. Dalton movies any day. I watch them over and over and over again. Whereas with the Moore movies, some of them, no, I'm never watching yeah. again unless you pay me or put a gun to my head. And other ones, it's like, eh, well, it depends on what I'm doing. There's only right. two Roger Moore movies I think that we've talked about that I could say that I would watch every time they're on. If I, I love, love me, me and for you guys only. The rest of them, and maybe I'll throw Live and Let Die in there. Because okay. Live and Let Die is... Bond hates black people. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, no, I like it because of the exploitation yes. vibe as we were talking about. I would take the two because just in those two movies, I felt he left an indelible stamp yeah. on the character. Oh, yeah, and I, you, know, you and I don't agree maybe about whether he is the best or not, but he definitely is the toughest. He's the best after Sean Connery. I would even put him above Sean Connery. He's the best after Sean Connery. I definitely think you would. I would agree that he is the toughest Bond, period. He could kick Daniel Craig's ass oh, man. from he, here to Jersey he and back. beat the ass off him. Mm-hmm. No problem. I think that a large part... Timothy Dalton wasn't a popular Bond. And I think yeah. that's because after we had had, what, 12 years of mm-hmm. Roger Moore? I think, frankly, he scared the shit out of a lot yeah. of people who had gotten used well, to the jokey Bond making quips. And he things. came in at a very unfortunate time. Actually, the first film did extremely well. And part of it was because it was released in the traditional Bond framework of November. And it was a new Bond, and usually yeah, there's usually with a, a new Bond, yeah. It's there's a, a curiosity factor. Right. The problem with the second film was that it was released in 1989 during the summer. Ooh. That has gone down in history as one of the biggest summers for movies ever. ever. We had, we had the first Batman. We had an Indiana yeah. Jones film. Ghostbusters 2. We had Ghostbusters 2. We had... Lethal Weapon 2 or 3, yeah. 2 or 3. We had all these films and Bond just got... I think also... has. It was like six blockbuster movies all in the same summer. And Bond came right after all of them. And I think that he suffered for it. But contrary to popular belief, as we'll get to when we get to the end of this episode, he did not kill the franchise. No, he did not. There was a third script that they were working on. Mm -hmm. And we'll tell you why... The Bond series disappeared for almost 10 years when we get to the end of this show. So we're going to switch it up a little bit, because usually, folks, I do the plot synopsis, yeah. and Tom provides the color commentary, but he's been waiting so long to do this, I'm going to All turn right. it over to my man, Tom. So, Tom, So the living daylight opens on the Isle of Gibraltar. Wonderful where pre-credit sequence. M is addressing three double O agents. Mm-hmm. We don't know who they are because their back is to the viewer. And he explains that they were chosen for this very important mission to test the defenses, the defenses of, of this radar station on Gibraltar. Mm-hmm. And he expects them to do well 
because he'd be out of a pint if they don't. This was presumably infiltrate right. and penetrate the defenses of this British installation on Gibraltar. And I like the fact that in this whole pre-credit sequence, they kind of plan the fact that we don't know who the new Bond is just mm-hmm. yet. The first guy goes down and is killed. The second guy... Killed for real! We killed might for add. Real. It's not because... He, he's stopped the paintball by right. one of the SAS agents and then goes wandering off and is, is shot for real. The second guy is climbing up one of the sheer cliff faces and is shot dead. After, of course, one of the SA agents finds the person at the top of the hill mm-hmm. and thinks he's the double O agent, shoots him with the paintball. Guy turns around with the gun and says, wait a minute, you're supposed to be dead. Yeah, he's, he's shoots the SAS agent. Shoots this little tag down his zip line that says, Smirch Smiotim, forgive me if I mispronounce that, and then sh- cuts his line, he falls to his death. Which is Russian for death despised. Death despised. Which is something that goes back to the Bond novels. The first couple of Bond novels were all about this organization called Smirsh. Right. That was their motto. Uh, am I right or am I just projecting it? Is? The two other double agents that got killed. Mm-hmm. To me, one of them has a resemblance to Sean Connery and then the other one has a resemblance to Roger Moore. I don't see it as much, but I can see where the... I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I said, well, he looks kind of like Roger Moore and the other one looks kind of like Sean Connery. I don't know if that was deliberate or if it's just me projecting. That's why I asked. The sound of 003, I think it is, falling to his death alerts our Bond, who then goes to investigate, sees this agent running off in this little truck. When you see a stunt in these two films, 90% of the time, that is Dalton doing this stunt. Because Dalton gets on top of the train rover. That's Phil, we should mention, with, with explosives, explosives and ammunition. And Bond is fighting with him. Well, he's still hanging on top of that truck. The explosives catch on fire. Yeah, because the guards, they run a gate, yeah. and the guards, who shoot. have live ammo, yeah. they shoot at it and... The truck Ignite. starts igniting and fire is coming out and bullets are going off. So, Bond knows he's kind of stuck in a bad situation, so he jumps off just as the thing is going over the cliff and blows up spectacularly. And opens up his spare chute. We then cut to this woman on a yacht somewhere, bemoaning the fact there are no real men here in Gibraltar. <laughs> And then, of course, you see the shadow of Bond coming in, and he does that little flippy thing. Right. That's really cool. Just takes her phone, goes, she'll call you back. Yeah. Clicks, and then calls up M. Yeah, he calls up M and said, well, the other two guys got wasted stuff went wrong. All the meantime, this chick is, like, opening up the champagne already. She's like, yeah, well, a a, a man. (laughs) (laughs) And the thing is, you can see right from this sequence the differences between Dalton and Moore. He doesn't bother flirting with this girl. He is all business. It's not until she offers the drink. It's like, I'll be back to the checkpoint in an hour. An hour. She she goes, won't you join me? Make that an hour and a half. Yeah. And we then move to, of course, the theme song. Mm -hmm. Another really boring Maurice Binder credit sequence. This is the one that famously features the very stone blonde climbing out of the champagne glass. Um, there's no other way to put it. She looks like she doesn't know where she is. Who did the theme song? Aha! Uh-huh. I do have a fondness for this theme song. Okay. It's not the greatest theme song in the world, but it is really cool. I like the way that they worked in the title. I like the imagery of that they keep coming back to in the song about the day bleeding out and the, the headlights fading away. It's a decent song. It's a decent song. It's but not a view to a kill. The other two songs in this one, the closing theme song, it yeah, yeah, was the man, man and man. the other one, I think is much better, but uh, we'll get wait, to those. We then cut to the other side of the, the, the curtain, where Bond is watching an 
orchestra performance. Is it Aust- No, it's not Austria. No, it's not Austria. No, it's, we right. get to Austria later. Right, because they go to Austria later on. Because they're on right, the, the other side right. of the, the Iron Curtain it's on this time. Cut. So I think it may be Czechoslovakia, it may be... Yeah, something like that. Bratislava, that's it, because they, they mention it later on in the film. Okay. Although the person who's heading the thing is from V-section from Vienna. Yeah. So that's probably where we're confused. So there, he's watching this orchestra, particularly this blonde cellist who is Cara Milovi, played by Mariam Diabo, who incidentally did the uh, screen test with Dalton, where they did a scene from From Russia with Love. Oh, okay. Which is where they got the idea, maybe we should cast her, because there seems to be some chemistry going on. The head of V branch comes up, and he learns what's going on. There's this Russian general, Kostlov, who is about to defect. Mm-hmm. He specifically asked for Bond to protect him. The V branch head is worried that somebody's going to try to assassinate him. During the intermission, they go over. There's this cool set thing where we find out that Bond's tuxedo is convertible into this assassin's cat suit. Yeah, it's Velcro and it pulls across, yeah. covers up his white shirt so mm. that now he's all dressed in black. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really cool. He puts together the gun. They got to rush Kozlov from the concert hall into right. the building across the street. So the plan is that Bond is going to cover them rushing yeah. from the concert hall to the building. He's got to be looking for the mm-hmm. assassin because they know it's an assassin. They just don't know right. who it is. So he's going to cover them and take out the assassin when the assassin tries right. to take out Kozlov. Kozlov escapes through a bathroom window to meet with his contact. The in section the, head the station. Right, because him and Bond right. have had a little thing. Oh, because, and he doesn't like Bond. Because the guy said, well, I know you're supposed to be James Bond and you're hot yeah. shit, but this is my operation. I know what I'm doing. You follow my Plan. And Bond is putting together the gun and he's going, yeah, 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 yeah. yo. Because, of course, he's James Bond. He's got his own Incidentally, plan. <laughs> the actor who plays V-Branch section mm-hmm. is not an actor. He's a journalist and was chosen because he had a certain superior air about him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like a real snot. In yeah, he's, which makes it all the more poignant later on in the movie when actually him and Bond kind of, if not friends, they, they have a kind of respect. Yeah. The respect grows. Bond is getting ready to cover and he sees the sniper. It's the cellist right. from earlier. And he's observing her, and there's something off, and he chooses to wound her rather than kill her, which causes V's section to get really pissed off. It's funny, because while he's putting together the gun, he's, when Bond asks how we're going to smuggle him out, mm-hmm. it's like, What's your escape route? Sorry, old man. Section 26, paragraph 5. That information is on a need-to-know basis only. I'm sure you understand. When he shoots the sniper, everything goes crazy. He pulls Kozlov out of the trunk where V branches put him. Because he tells him yeah. that's the first place they're going yeah. to look. Puts him in the back seat and he's like, well, where are we going? And, and Bond goes, sorry, that's a need-to-know basis. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you understand. And they drive to the Trans-Siberian Pipeline, a real pipeline that runs from Russia to Austria. And here we get the plan that Bond has put together. They've converted a pig, which is this device used for cleaning the pipeline. Used to clean out the pipe. They shoot it through there like a bullet. Right. And it goes through there and it just breaks up any obstruction that's in the pipeline. They've converted a pig to be a one-man shuttle. It's cushioned. It's got its own air supply. Bond plugs them in there. Yeah. Right. With the help of a female worker who was an actress. Remember the film She Devil? Very vaguely. With Roseanne Barr? Oh, yeah, yeah. It was based on a British television series. This actress was the person who played the Roseanne Barr. Oh, okay. And I think the same actress years later, she was in The Fifth Element. 
She may very well have been. Yeah, because yeah. she even had the same with the, the two Princess Leia buns on the side of her head. <laughs> so he puts her in the pig, shoots them out while the woman distracts her boss oh, yeah. by literally shoving her boobs in his face, mm-hmm. and shoots him over to the other side, where Q is waiting. Q unloads Kozlov, puts him on a VTOL, has Bond and V-Branch are waiting to be checked by the soldiers to go into Austria. Because the plane actually passed yes. over their head as they're sitting there and they're getting their passports checked. V-Branch is going, you realize that I'm going to report you because you disobeyed an order. And it's like, Bond explains why. He, he says, I only kill professionals. Go to no one end of a rifle from the other. Go ahead, tell him what you want. He finds me, I'll thank him for it. Whoever she was must have scared the living daylights out of her. Ooh, he said the title! Ooh! <laughs> well, they do that just about every James oh, Bond yeah. movie. The way they worked it in, thank God, wasn't as stupid as the way they worked it in from a view to a kill. That was oh, nuts. that was awful. We cut from there to Universal Exports, where Bond is having one of his usual discussions with Q. They've tricked out the Aston Martin again for the umpteenth time. We don't know what's in it, though. We don't get one of these, this is all that's going on with this, this right. Aston he Martin. He just tells them that it's just been ripped. Well, that's so that right. we can have the surprises later on when there's a big chase. Right. He also explains these new gadgets he's created for them, which are all revolving around car beeper thing. Yeah. It turns out that if you press one button and you whistle the first bars to rule Britannia, knockout gas comes out, and if you attach it magnetically to something and give a wolf whistle, it blows up. There's almost a father and son-like vibe going on between the Dalton Bond and Q, and this gets paid off in the next film. Yeah, especially, because it's like, in some parts, okay. He, he doesn't seem as exasperated with Dalton. When we had the Moore era, yeah. it was like, couldn't stand this Bond oh, yeah. sometimes. It was like, could you just get away from me, you annoying? It's like, Q really couldn't stand Bond right. sometimes. And I think part of it was because John Glenn, who directed this film and also directed the last couple of the Moore Bonds, explains that Desmond Lewin had a terrible time remembering all the technical dialogue he had to give. And Roger Moore used to go in and alter his script and add more technical gobbledygook because he thought it was funny. Oh, okay. Whereas, Timothy Dalton apparently did his best to help Llewellyn learn his lines. Okay. Well, see, Roger Moore is one of these people, and we all know people like this. Yeah. He thought he was a lot funnier than he yeah. actually was. <laughs> I think Len made a comment on one of the commentary tracks for the Ultimate Edition that because Dalton is a stage-trained actor, he was trained in the way that if you're a lead actor, you're obligated to help yeah. your a fellow actors exactly. and defend them. And I think that's what was going on. And I mm-hmm. think that courtesy that he gave to Llewellyn bleeds off into the screen. Yeah, yeah, it does. Because I think in the next one, he refers to Q many times as his uncle. His he, uncle, yes. He introduces them. They do have that feel of father-son or nephew mm-hmm. and a favorite uncle. And it, it's weird because when we get to the Pierce Brosnan stuff, it's back to it the old Q. Bro- yeah. We go back to the old Q who's exasperated by everything mm-hmm. Bond does until the last movie where they have their yeah. final scene. That's really touching and mm-hmm. heartwarming. We also learn about the ghetto blaster in this film. Ah, uh, yeah. The, <laughs> the infamous ghetto <laughs> blaster. Ah, good! Something we're making for the Americans. Called a ghetto blaster. Before he can go further, he is interrupted by Money Penny. Now, this is not 
Lois Maxwell. No. The decision was made that since they're going with a noticeably younger Bond, it would be rather creepy for Lois Maxwell to be lusting after To be hitting on a guy young enough to be a son. Right. <laughs> so enter Carolyn Bliss, who becomes the second person to play Money Penny. When I was younger and saw this film in the theater for the first time, I was really smitten with her. I think part of it is just she's got these big old nerd glasses. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I call that the sexy librarian. Yeah, she's been looking over the MI5 dossiers on various female assassins to see if they can locate this cellist person. She's been told to still look. Meanwhile, she reminds him he has to go to Harrods to pick up something for this meeting he's going to. Right, he's got to pick up a gift basket. Which leads us to a scene that I know you and I both absolutely adore. A 20-minute sequence which introduces the main henchman of the film, Andrew Wyniski's Necros. Necros. Kosloff is being held in a safe house. In the countryside, yes. Like where, one of them old English manor type things. Where he's living the life yeah. of Riley. He's mm-hmm. sipping champagne, he's eating caviar, he's watching cable TV, and he's bullshitting mm-hmm. MI6. In the meantime, and because his, they got him their information, right. and he's just having a party. The big information he's conveying to MI6 concerns General Pushkin, his old friend. Now, in the original script for this film, this part was supposed to be played by our good friend General Gogol. However, Walter Gotell became very, very sick, and insurance would not clear him to do all the traveling he would have required. Uh, so they had to create this new character, General Pushkin, who is played by John Reese Davies. Right. Our old friend Sala from Raiders mm-hmm. of the Lost Ark. Once you know that, certain dialogue later on in this film makes a lot more sense than it does here. Yeah, because it's pretty obvious that it yeah. was a dialogue that was meant specifically for the General Gogol right. character. Because we've seen Bond have these interactions with him. Yeah, yeah. And you can say that he is friendly with him. He's bullshitting them because he's telling them Pushkin is out to kill mm-hmm. British agents. That's why they had the Death to Spies tag on the thing. Yes. And M is saying, well, wait a minute, I know Pushkin. Pushkin is not that type yeah. of guy. What kind of bag right. of bullshit are you trying oh, to I, sell I love this bit of buzzer uh, dialogue where he goes, you mean General Pushkin, the man who replaced General Gogol as the head of the KGB? Yeah. This big gout of expository dialogue that just comes That out. the characters know already, so why yeah. are you repeating it? But, of course, it's meant for us. It's not meant for... So yeah. Bond shows up with the Harrods backs. Meanwhile, we keep seeing these little scenes with this tall blonde man who is played by a dancer... Andrew Wineski. Who seems to have a Walkman. Right. Headphones permanently grafted on his head. And our first encounter with the song, Where Has Everybody Gone? Right. Co-written by Pretender's lead vocalist Chrissy Hines and John Barry. Mm-hmm. This is, by the way, John Barry's last film in the series. He's listening on his headphones. He actually bumps into a milkman, apologizes. He has an American accent. Milkman's going about his business. Up pops this guy. Strangles him with the headphones. Yeah, the cord of the headphones. While the music is still playing. Which is an important key because this song, Where Has Everybody Gone? It keeps popping up. Becomes his theme song. Becomes his musical cue. He takes the milkman's apron, puts it on, gets on the milk truck, drives up to the thing with a new accent, and infiltrates this manor house. Then gets into a tremendous fight with the butler, who is a trained agent. And this is one of these long, grueling fights, kind of like what Sean Connery used to get into back in his day. That was in the kitchen, because he gets the milk, he brings it in, he kills the guards at the gate. He's going through taking out everybody as he goes along, so this way he has no opposition going out. 
But when he gets to the kitchen... Meanwhile, Bond has already left. Yeah, he came, he dropped off the food oh, basket, and pushed him to say, James, 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 my old kiss, friend. Kiss, kiss, kiss. Yeah, and he said, oh, this man got me out. He's the greatest secret agent in the world. We should and mention that General Kosloff is played by Dutch actor Jerome Krabbe, who was well-known at that time for being in the Dutch films Spetters and Agent of Orange, starring Rucker Howard. As a matter of fact, I believe it was Rucker Howard that was telling him, yeah, well, if you're getting an offer for American film, take right. it. We see what success he had when right. he came from mm-hmm. We see him go through the house, and he's taking out these agents. And then when he gets to the kitchen, and him and that agent have that wonderful fight and scene. And agent is using everything he can think of to throw at this guy. And Necros is just, forget that shit. But it's good because, first of all, the guy in the kitchen, this guy's right. putting up a hell of a fight. Which goes to, for me, elevate the status of the double O's. And that they're all good. Right. You know, it just happens that James Bond is a little bit... But because they spend so much time in this one scene, because the sequence lasts about 20 minutes, they are definitely building up the fact that, much like they built up Red Grant in Rush With Love, they're letting you know right up front, this guy's not to be fucked with. Yeah, he's dangerous. This is a seriously badass... This is a dangerous guy. And that just makes you wonder all the more, what's going to happen when he finally runs into jail? I love how he replaced the milk bottles with milk bottles that actually grenade. Right, (laughs) yeah. But that's important because that then allows him to set up the gas leak story where he calls in and says, we have a gas leak, we should evacuate the thing immediately. Everybody leaves the, the manor house. He then grabs Kosloff, takes off the apron, rebuttons the white outfit so he's now an ambulance guy mm-hmm. and leads him off. The helicopter, you know he has a helicopter. Right. He's got Kozlov and he flies him out. So now the British Secret Service look like a bunch of assholes because right. within 24 hours of them having got the defector, the defector mm-hmm. is kidnapped back by presumably the Russians. Russians. M is pissed off to no end. And so he he's, tells Bond, he's having a uh, conniption oh, he's in having front a, of Bond he, and he orders a, him to go and assassinate Pushkin. Pushkin. And here's where we get to this line of dialogue because he goes, I no Pushkin. I consider him a friend. I don't think he would be doing these things. If this was Gogol, this would make total sense. Yeah, exactly. This new character, we're like, where is this coming from? He initially refuses. Yeah, he's- M says, I'll get 004. I'm sure he doesn't have the same sentimental attachments to this. Exactly. I'm giving it to 004. He follows order. Yeah. And Bond's like, oh, well, you know what? Okay, if it's got to be done. It should be I- done by somebody yeah. who respects him. We know that Bond is saying, I'm going to verify this first before, and yes. then he'll take action. And by this time, Moneypenny has some news about the cellist. Ah! She's done a little cross-referencing, and there was a little... News report about this gifted cellist who had injured herself during an intermission recently. Mm. And so he figures, this is my assassin. He asks Moneypenny to book a flight to Morocco, mm-hmm. where Pushkin is going for a meeting with some world leaders, but by way of Bratislava. Mm-hmm. Because he's going to track down... He's going to track down the cellist. Right. Which he does, just as she's being harassed by a actor who I just call, you know, pointy head. Not a point here. This guy is just really mean, and he takes her in for questioning. She leaves her cello, and he goes into the room, local bathroom, checks it out, and the gun's still there. Yeah, dude, yeah. Which I mean, makes me wonder why she's carrying around this cello case with the gun several days later. Why didn't she just dump it? And if the cello is so important to you, then what you do with the cello? Shouldn't, if you're an assassin, especially after the assassination has gone wrong, wouldn't you dump the gun? Yeah. First thing you do, well, shit, let me get rid of the gun. Mm-hmm. Why are you still carrying it around? He waits for her until she gets released by the Russian government Mm -hmm. and confronts her. We find that her place has been trashed Mm -hmm. totally. And he then portrays himself as a friend of Georgie Kosloff. 
which leads us into one of the first major plot yeah. twists. We find out that the cellist, Kyra, has actually had a relationship. Right. She's called right. girlfriend. Presumably, I guess he seduced her right. so that she wouldn't shoot him. Or so maybe he seduced her into pretending to shoot him so it would look like a legitimate escape. Right. But in any case, now right. this has got Bond a little bit suspicious of Kozlov. He pretends that he's a friend of his and right. he's going to take her to... However, they are kind of tailed by the Bratislavan police. Which leads to, yes, you're right, the first really major action sequence, which is the car chase across the frozen lake, where we get to see all the new wacky Aston Martin things. It's got ski pontoons, mm-hmm. so it can travel across. It's got a jet engine like the Batmobile that flips mm-hmm. out yeah. the back. Eventually, though, the car gets wrecked. Yeah. And so they have to find some way to get out of it. And this is an interesting story. The way that they get out is by taking the cello case, opening it up, and kind of using it as a sledge. Yeah. With the cello. Yeah, to steer, yeah. This was not in the script. John Glenn suggested this idea, and Broccoli and Wilson hated it. <laughs> they said it was a stupid idea. You listen to it, and yeah, it sounds yeah. stupid. Don't just sells it. Glenn went, because there was somebody who was doing a soundtrack recording that day, went, borrowed the cello case from the person in the orchestra, brought it into the office with Cubby and Michael, opened it up, sat in it, and demonstrated that it is possible. Yeah, yeah. And won them over. And you're right, it is an inherently silly idea, but Dalton sells it completely. The way he does it, you believe that, oh, I can see where it works. <laughs> which, of course, leads to one of the, the sillier moments, which is when they go through the customs. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. We have nothing to declare. Throws yeah. up the cello. And catches it on the other side. Except the cello. Yeah. He said, here, take this and wave it as we go by getting yeah, the right. passport. Which kind of proves that Dalton's bond wasn't without humor, but his humor was much more deadpan. Yeah. Than Moore. Right. Because Moore was like, wink, wink, here's a joke. Yeah, he was so broad, it was amazing. But yeah, Dalton had a little bit more restraint. I hear that a lot say, oh, well, his mind had no sense of humor. Well, yes, he did. It yeah. just wasn't the nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Did you get that? Did you get that kind of... It was deadpan type of humor. Right. Bond and Kara are in Austria. Yeah. And we cut to Morocco for a little bit. To a set that was actually the Moroccan summer home of Malcolm Forbes. Hmm. That's a name I haven't heard of. And we are introduced... To the other major villain in the film, Mr. Brad Whitaker. General Brad General, Whitaker. sorry, General Brad Whitaker. Played by John Doe Baker. Necros ushers Kosloff into Whitaker's home. You know there's something off with this guy because... <laughs> His anteroom is lined with wax statues of military... All the great military leaders Including, mind you, Hitler, Genghis Khan, Caesar. Caesar. The funny thing is, is if you look closely at these statues, they've all got Brad Whitaker's face they've on. They've all got his face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So you know there's something off with this guy. And we learned that General Whitaker... General Whitaker. ...is the head of a mercenary army and is a notorious arms dealer. Mm-hmm. We also learn later on in a great scene that he has with General Pushkin. Mm-hmm. He purports himself to be this great military strategist. And, well, yeah, know, but then we find out that he actually got kicked out of just about yeah. every military school in the world because he's incompetent. One point, oh, it's, it's Bond who makes mention of the various wax statues and calls them butchers. Yeah. He goes, no, surgeons. Surgeons. He's a little pissed off because Pushkin is apparently putting pressure on a pipeline he has to one faction of this war in Afghanistan. Now, this is where we probably should mention, Tom. This is where the plot gets a little bit complicated now. Uh, to say the least, yeah. Yeah. The Living Daylights has one of the most complicated plots of any Bond movie that I could think of because it's tied in with what was then the current war in Afghanistan. Right. 
And then we've got the whole Russia subplot going on with Kozlov. And then we've got the thing with General Whitaker going on, trading with the arms. Well, go ahead. Well, the you, thing yeah. is, is, General Whitaker has entered into this alliance with General Kozlov. Right. Who never really planned to defend. To trick 007 into assassinating Pushkin. Pushkin. Because with Pushkin out of the way, things will be in disorder, which means that they can continue pumping weapons into the into Af- Afghan. Into, into Afghan. Afghan conflict, yeah. And thus, Whitaker makes lots of money. Koslov, who's one of these communists who just apparently loves capitalism, yeah. will be able to be kept happy amongst women and all sorts of luxury items. And in the meantime, everybody is hunting the British Secret Service because they, be- they believe that if 007 assassinates yes. him, so their hands are clean. And Necros, who is part of a rebel faction, like I think like Cyprus or something, yeah. will continue to get specific aid from Whitaker, which yeah. is why he's here. Whitaker is like, why isn't Pushkin dead yet? <laughs> <laughs> and Cos says, no way, it's going, to, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And he says, well, let, maybe we should put some pressure on Mr. Bond, and sends Necros off to Vienna. So meanwhile, they're in Vienna, and this was a backdrop that John Glenn had a lot of nostalgia for, because his first job in the movie industry was as a junior editor on The Third Man. Okay. Which is why there's a big scene with the Ferris wheel. With the wheel. Ferris wheel. The right. same Ferris wheel that Joseph mm-hmm. Cotton and Orson right. Welles had their famous discussion right. on. Yeah. Bond and Kara check into this fabulous hotel. There's this moment where Kara's wandering into this dress shop. A dress shop, yeah. And she's admiring this beautiful sapphire gown. And she's mm-hmm. like, that's for like a prince or a, a president or something. Mm-hmm. And Bond just goes, let's buy him. And next thing when we see him, they're, they're at the opera. Yeah, he tells the concierge to give him tickets for the opera and yeah. all this kind of make sure the carriage out in front of the, mm-hmm. he's treating this broad like yeah because she's, she's his only connection to yeah, Koslov right and of course she believes that they're buddy buddy she's constantly saying oh well where's Yorgi where's your, well Yorgi said he'll be here if he doesn't come here then we Meanwhile, go on there, there is sparkage there's obviously sparkage going on between the two of them as well which kind of sort of gets to a head on that Ferris wheel they go to the, the opera we get to see about a minute and a half of the marriage of Figaro this is an actual production done yeah. by the Vienna Opera company and he meets again with the head of v branch who at first kind of still being a dick but he's like look this woman is our only connection to Kozlov. i need you to, to do me this favor and go and try to locate we need to find out where he might be and bond doesn't exactly placate the guy yeah. but you no know, he says to him listen i know you got a job to do and if i stepped on your right. toes before it's not like he's not exactly yeah. apologizing but he's just letting him know okay maybe i shouldn't have did it that way maybe i should let you in but can you do this for me now and let's get this job done. The head of E-Branch says, I'll see what I can do. Meet me at this place mm-hmm. tonight. So they go to the Park of Vienna. They do the, the, the mm-hmm. Ferris wheel. They actually get kind of snuggly. Yeah. Now, nowhere do we actually see Bond sleep with anybody in this film. Although there is a lot of romanticism between him and Kara. We can presume he slept with the woman in the pre-credits scene. Yes. From the hour and a half right. comment. However, E-Branch has apparently found something out. And goes to the meeting place, which is a little cafe, with sliding glass doors. The most bizarre <laughs> death scene I've seen in a... I haven't seen a death so bizarre since Yafit Kato's yeah. in Live and Let Die. And as he's going into this thing, we hear, Where has everybody gone? Mm. One of the things that's like kind of cute about this film is that they've created this leaf motif to let the viewer know where Necros is without anybody else knowing. In the and film. they even do during the fights, especially the kick-ass fights yeah. at the end, they use uh, an, yeah, orchestral an orchestral version. version of it. Did Jaws have a theme song? No, it did not. Did Odd Job? Nope. Will Onatop have one? Nope. 
No, but Necros has one. Necros has one. What Necros does is he does something and opens up the mechanism box with the sliding doors, and jimmies it in such a way so that when the head of Bree Branch walks through, it slams on him, and it is kind of implied cuts him in two. We have to wonder here, how did Necros, first of all, know that they were going to meet there? When did he have time to put in this mechanism in the door? Because I'm sure he had to have something, because the glass shatters. That's how hard the doors come together. When did he have time to do this? I can argue... Or did he already have the doors given years ago? I can kind of argue, because remember, there's a problem at the Ferris wheel. And the Ferris wheel gets stuck for a while. Yeah. What I can kind of argue, but the fact is you're right, that's a big question mark in this film. Yeah. That Necros was already following the head of V-Branch because he knew that he met with Bond in the Opera House. Okay. And he figured this must be where he's going to be meeting Bond later. And he chose that as a method of opportunity since it took so long and it was obvious V... Boy, you reach it. I reach it. <laughs> but it's still cool, man. You are reaching. It is still a cool you scene. You are reaching, son. Let's just chalk it up to you. And sure enough, the sound of this glass shattering into a million pieces causes Bond to leave Kara, go and take a look. We don't see the mess, but we're sure it's an absolute mess. From the look on Bond's face, yeah. this guy got messed it, It's up. one of those cue coming across Sanjay. Yeah. But it kind of snaps Bond back yeah. into his job and mode. And he also where... finds a balloon with Smirch Smirnoff, or as Ian and Adon like to refer to it as Smirch Smirnoff. Yeah. <laughs> Which kind of snaps him back into his job and mode. And then there's like this says... great moment where he goes and he sees this group of balloons floating by and he figures this must be Necros. Mm. We know it's not Necros because we don't hear where. We don't hear, we don't hear the music. Yeah. Exactly. And he leaps over with the gun and he scares a mother and his kid. Mm-hmm. And little kid's like, holy shit. <laughs> yeah. James, James, what's the matter? What's the matter? It's like, we have to go to Morocco. We now switch to Morocco. So everybody is there, right? Including Pushkin, who, as we mentioned earlier, is speaking at a special delegation. Bond stalks his way into his hotel room after observing him going in with his wife, who is played by Virginia Hay. I was about to mention that for you Farscape fans, and I'm mm-hmm. one of them, if you remember Virginia Hay, who played the blue-skinned babe yeah. for the first couple of seasons. And she was also in the Road Warrior. Yes, she, she was. The Warrior Woman. She plays Pushkin's wife. He sneaks in and gets the drop on Pushkin. Pushkin, of course, does not know what the hell Bond's talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. To say the least, he's like, yes. you know, what the hell is wrong? Meanwhile, old pointy heads is noticing something's going on in the other end of General Sweet is about to come in. So what does Bond do? Perhaps Pushkin's wife and tears off her robe. Mm-hmm. So the, the second pointy head comes in, he sees... Virginia Hay naked, pretty much. Which ain't bad at all. And kind of like, just in time for Bond to knock him out. Which is understandable, because Virginia Hay is a gorgeous looking babe. So, what ends up happening is like, look, something is going on, I don't know what it is, but apparently I have to kill you. Pushkin and Bond, they have a meeting of the minds. And once again, you can... Yeah, because it's obvious that Pushkin honestly doesn't know what the hell is going on. But it's a credit to both Dalton and to Davies that here's this new character, standing in for an old character, and they still manage to sell it. Yeah, that there do, is yeah. this sort of prior relationship between the two of them that is a friendly relationship. Well, it can be argued that this is a character that Bond is no, we've just never seen him before. Because right. I'm sure that Gogol wasn't the only Russian general right. that he had contact with. And the, the, he comes up with the idea as well, I realize there's only one choice in the matter. I have to die. Because they figure that's the only way they right. go to Bond can find out what exactly what's going right. on. We then cut to Pushkin addressing this meeting. And a shot rings out. Several shots. Somebody turns a spot. 
spotlight on Bond, and we see Bond standing there. He's pumped right. a couple of shots into him. Necros had been sent by Whitaker just in case Bond doesn't do it. Because Necros was getting ready to shoot mm-hmm. him before Bond okay. did. Because remember, Necros goes back and makes the report. Mm-hmm. He said, yeah, well, Bond was there because we see Kozlov. He's wearing a wine shirt and he's oh. got on the big vest. He said, I told you. I, I told you he was going to yes. do it. And he's got one of the fruity drinks in his yeah. head. And he's got the two girls. Yeah. And, then, and he's pushing the one girl aside and all this. And we have this typical poolside scene that's in almost every Bond film. Yeah, where the bad guys where, sit by and, the and then all the Women are flocking over. Necros doesn't seem to have any interest whatsoever in the women. Because Whitaker's eating like a mountain yeah. of lobster tail. Yes. He's like ripping <laughs> them apart. The biggest fucking lobster I've ever seen. He's ripping the thing yeah. apart with his bare hands like an animal. They make a weird pair in that scene. Yeah. I love that scene just for the weird juxtaposition. And like I said, Necros is standing off to one side. He's not interested in food. He's not interested in women. He's not interested in booze. He's interested in doing his job. And mm-hmm. presumably getting back to wherever he's at. Yeah. And the look as he's looking at these two guys, he says, I can't believe I'm working for these two <laughs> fucking guys. <laughs> you know, that's the look on his face. Right. Bond, Bond is now on the run. Chased a- across the Moroccan rooftops mm-hmm. by uh, the Russians. The Russians. Yeah. Uh, there was a cut scene which showed that John Glenn still was kind of under Roger Moore's sway because there was a scene that he, he had shot which had Bond taking a Turkish rug, putting it over two wires and riding on like a like a magic, a magic carpet, carpet. Yeah. and then you would cut to these three guys with hookah pipes going, oh, I'm never gonna smoke this again. Yeah, yeah. Bullshit. Thank you very much for not doing that, Mr. Oh, Glenn. yes. And eventually he's he picked up by two women. Two women. Blonde and... Okay. American Well, She's okay. got an American accent. And they're in a convertible right. and they're driving by and they say, oh, handsome. And yeah. Bond thinks that they're like hookers trolling for John. Mm-hmm. So he jumps into the Cadillac. Cause they and say, he oh, gets taken to Oh, his... you want a party? He said, yeah, let's party. He gets taken to the shot, which we have seen off the coast of Whitaker's house a couple of times. And we meet probably the weirdest iteration of Felix Leiter ever. Although, oddly enough, and I'm not sure about this, I think he might be the only Leiter who's actually played by an actual Texan. Hmm, okay, interesting. The guy looks kind of like Joe Bob Briggs. Although that's yeah, the guy yeah. Who is like, why are you messing me up, Bond? <laughs> I've been monitoring Whitaker for all this time. I'm trying to close in on him. Why are you fucking why, with me? Why did you have to go and kill Pushkin? What did he ever do to you? We find out that, of course, Pushkin didn't die. It was staged, as we see Reese Davies pulling off this blood pack. Like they yeah. use in the movie. I always like to think that's the actual blood pack that yeah. they use for that mm-hmm. scene. You don't make like a shot because he pulls it off and he says, he says, the first yes. time I've ever been glad 007 is such a good shot. Right. <laughs> they compare notes. Mm-hmm. Bond goes back to his hotel where Kara's waiting in a little bathrobe, making drinks, shaking not stirred, of course. And he takes the drink. And it's drugged. Because by now, Kozlov has I, made contact yeah. with her. Right. And said, listen, this guy's a British secret agent. He's not to be trusted. So here, you do this. You put now, this in his drink and knock him out. Does he come clean before he takes the drink about being the person who shot her? As he's falling into unconsciousness, oh. he's explaining to her how she got the bruise on his right, arm. Okay. And she says... Well, how do you know about that? He said, because I was the one that shot you. I made the decision not to kill you. So she realizes it just as he's falling unconscious. Right. Necros walks in. And he's trying to yeah, get the gun, but trying to shoot him. When next he wakes up, they're on a plane. He's handcuffed to the seat. Th- there's a cooler that Necros is guarding like mm-hmm. this Fort Knox. Yeah. And supposedly it's got a it, human it, it, heart. It actually says, you know, yeah. human organ on the side. And it does have a heart in it, but it's also full of diamonds. They've secreted diamonds in amongst 
the ice to hide yeah. them. Yeah. This is where it gets confusing. They're going to trade the diamonds for a plane full of opium? Is Which they're then going to sell yeah. on behalf of the, the Afghan to then use the money for guns. <laughs> and Whitaker just keeps the money. Isn't that kind of like walking around the world across yeah. the street? Why it, not it just is. sell the diamonds? It is. It's one of those Bond movies where the plot isn't very strong, but it's, it's MacGuffin to Well, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. You know, so they, like in any Bond movie. Uh, while they're on the plane, Bond forgives Kara, and then they land in Afghanistan. Kozlov is uh, greeting his friend, the Russian who's in charge, mm-hmm. warmly, and then tells Kara, you know, Bond, put him in jail. Kara, I'm sure we're going to reassign you to the Siberian Orchestra. <laughs> they have a very creative... And she looks at him like, holy shit. Well, what else did you expect? And Kozlov, in the meantime, is selling this guy this bag of bullshit that he's yeah. been on this undercover yeah. mission. And I never actually defected. It was all part of a plot. Yeah, Kozlov's a weasel. But he's an entertaining yeah. weasel. <laughs> and I'm sure that somewhere along the line, he had a plan to double-cross Whitaker as oh, well. Oh, I'm sure he did. This man has no loyalty to anybody oh. whatsoever. Except to his booze and his babe. Even his babes he doesn't have much loyalty to. No. They get hideaway to a jail where they share a jail cell with the actor Art Malik who plays Namar Shah, Oxford educated, the leader of the Afghan rebels. Which we don't know at first. At first, he's playing like being a drunk or something. Yeah, he's in the drunk tank. In fact, he explains later on that the reason he was playing at being a drunk was because they didn't realize who they had. They caught him by accident, so he just played along with it. During the fight where Bond and Caro escape, Bond turns him loose. He throws him the keys and says, okay, which of course endears the guy to, and of course which ends up saving Bond's life later right. on in the movie. So Because they get captured by the Afghan rebels after they break out of mm-hmm. jail. But then Shaw goes, no, 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 this people right. help me. Yeah, you know, they're, they're enemies, the enemies of They're the enemies Russia. of our enemies. Right. That makes them our friends. Right. I'm a little hazy as to what's going on. Well, Bond tries to get them to help him him. Right. The Shah says, well, listen, you know, I'm grateful you turned me loose, but we got our own problems right. here. And Bond just says, okay, well, just get me on the airplane, because it's a big right. cargo plane that's full of opium. opium right. Now, on Kos- these two big nets. Right. Because Kozlov has made the deal. He's traded mm. diamonds. He's got the opium. Now all that's left is to get it back to Whitaker, get the guns, and everybody presumably lives happily yeah, ever right. after. Except Kozlov would probably betray Whitaker, take the money for himself so he can buy booze and cut Oh, sure. Why not? The Afghans, they attack the Russian base. There's this big, massive battle scene. There's shit blowing up all over right. the place. Bond gets on the plane, and he makes the mistake of letting Kara fly the plane. Yes. <laughs> Cellist, that's kind of like being a pilot <laughs> with only one instruction. Yeah, hold the wheel steady. Yes, because Necros has gotten on the plane as well, mm-hmm. which leads into one because, of the best fist fights in Bond because history. they had to do some special trickery for this. Because it turns out you can't fly a Hercules plane like that with the loading bay opened up. Right, I would imagine that that's a yeah. safety feature so mm-hmm. that nobody pulls right, nobody out the damn out. plane. Right. Yeah. But he steals the plane right up under Kozlov's nose because Kozlov is standing there, get my right. plane back, yes. get my plane back. And Necros gets on the plane, which is why Bond has to let Carol fly the plane because he's got to go back right. and kick this guy's ass. Now, this is obviously one of the few stunts where Timothy Dalton was not allowed to do. Oh, hell no. It was done over the Mojave Desert by two members who also did the parachuting sequences in Moonraker and will also be doing the Skyhook sequence in the next film, License to Kill. 
they did this several times. Oh, I They can't, actually yeah. had a third person off screen mm-hmm. with a parachute because what was going on was that the net was flying up and down right. in the high wind. Because Bond and Necros yeah. are hanging off of the net. Mm-hmm. They're dodging the bags of opium that are flying right. past them. At the same time, they're fighting each other. And the net is going up and down. Several times, the net actually smacked into the bottom of the plane, knocking out a stuntman. The stuntman would start falling and they had a third person there to do an emergency jump mm-hmm. to catch up with him and pull his emergency chute so yeah. he didn't die. It's one of them scenes you look at it and you say, how the hell did they film it? And it takes me back. People say, oh, CGI this, CGI that. There's some things you can't do with CGI right. and this was one of them. Mm. These are actual guys that are out there doing this shit. They get down and... <coughs> Fight it out. Eventually, Necros loses his grip, grabs hold of Bond's boot, mm-hmm. and Bond just takes his knife, cuts the laces. What happened? He got the boot. Goodbye, Necros. One of the best henchmen in Bond oh, history. Oh, man. Because he was kicking Bond's ass for a while while they were hanging on to that net. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, though, Kara is not being successful flying the plane and actually gets it to go into a mountain. Right. But luckily, they're able to get out using the Jeep that they came in on. When they land, it's like Karachi. It's four miles like... I know a good restaurant in Karachi. Well, it's James Bond. He knows a good yeah. restaurant everywhere. We should make it just for dinner time. Uh-huh. Which leads us with the only bad guy left to deal with now. It's Whitaker, who is royally pissed off because now he ain't got no diamonds. He ain't got no opium. Yeah. He ain't got nothing. <laughs> Bond sneaks into Whitaker's house. With the help of Felix Leiter. Well, but yeah, but he sneaks into Whitaker's Finds him in the chamber where he has his toy soldier collection. Reenacting a Civil War battle, but making it so that the Confederates win. Yeah, well, he's got all these huge yeah. gaming tables mm-hmm. with all these different armies of all the great battles. He yeah. takes the losing side and he works it out so that mm-hmm. whoever the losing side was, they won. And he's explained to Bond that, well, if Lee had did this and he did yeah. that. And the whole room is tricked out with death trap. Which leads to a tense back and forth between Bond with his little Walter PPK and turns out all these tables, there are armaments under them yeah. that he, I assume, uses a showroom model. He pulls out this freaking rocket launcher looking thing yeah, with a clear plastic shield that's bulletproof. Yeah. And he's wearing body armor, but yeah. his uniform. But Bond, of course, gets to use his wolf whistle activated exploding car keys and takes him out. The only thing that's left is to catch Kozlov, right. which Pushkin does. And, of course, Kozlov's going, General Pushkin, thank God you're still alive. Oh. Whitaker has helped me here for weeks. Thank you for rescuing me. Thank you. <laughs> Georgi, Georgi. <laughs> Put him on the next plane to Moscow. Oh, thank you, General. Thank <laughs> you so much. Thank you. In the diplomatic bag. Cosmo was like, wait a minute, what did I do? What <laughs> then cut to the final scene. It is at some unspecified place in Europe where Kara is doing a recital. 
And we learn that this is part of a world tour that she is giving. She's being apparently shepherded by our old friend General Gogol. Yeah, General Gogol. Who is now part of the cultural attaché. M is in attendance and they have a little nice word. I love how the Shah and his boys yeah. just bu- And the Shah and his they boys just come bu- in looking like, oh, they just bust up into the piece like, yeah, okay, we got this. And they and, shoving people yeah, aside. Yeah, going, no, it's okay, they're friends. They come in with the guns in the yeah. <laughs> He's got his robes on. He and says, I was asking, where's James? Yeah. And they don't know. But we also see at one point when she's playing the cello that the bullet hole is still there They're from still the chase. There, yeah. And she's kind of bereft. She goes back to her dressing room and they're waiting for her two flutes of champagne. Mm. Turns out Bond's been there all the time. They go and snuggle and the lights go down. We hear the third song of the three yeah. songs. Yeah. This is like the most musical of any of the Bond films. Yeah. Because, which is If Ever There Was a Man. Yeah. Also yeah. written and performed by Christy Hines. A lovely song. Lovely uh, written song. in association with John Barry. And we are told of course that James Bond will return. And license to kill. License to kill. So to sum up, yeah. I mean, I love this movie. Yeah, I do too. You will not hear me say anything bad about The Living Dead. The only things that I can say, the plot, I feel it's a little bit overcomplicated, mm-hmm. really. But I do like how it was tied into the current political. As we're going to see with the other one, the Timothy Dalton bombs were very tied into whatever yeah. the current political climate was going on at, at mm-hmm. the time. And with the whole thing with the Afghan thing, and because we still had the Cold War right. going on at the time. It's still you know, weird seeing Bond fighting alongside the Taliban. Yeah, but then the Taliban were the good guys. Right. It's like in that Rambo movie. And we forget that a lot of these guys were CIA trained. But you look you at know. it, you got a tremendous henchman in oh, that Oh, uh, yeah. You got some, I mean, not like the greatest villains in the world, but both Whitaker and Kozlov are really good. Especially Kozlov. I just mm-hmm. love him. He's a wonderfully scheming weasel. Me, at least. I can't wait to see who he's going to double-cross yeah. next. If things have worked out better for him, I feel he had a plan in oh, place yeah. to double-cross Whitaker and end up with all the money for mm-hmm. himself. While she's not exactly to my taste, Mariam Diabo, is the, her character is very effective. Yeah. She has a real reason for being there. Yeah. Uh, as opposed the, to when we get to Pambu in the next film, mm. where you're like, why are you still here? Yeah, she's not just eye candy. She does have a reason for being in the plot. She's actually incredibly integral to the plot. Yeah, right. If you took her out of the movie, you right. wouldn't have... This did very well. In fact, I remember reading at the time that it did three times more in tickets than A View to a Kill, which was... Very badly received. And so it was definitely understandable that they were going to go forward with the next film, which was originally called License Revoked. Revoked. Cubby does not make it to the end of this film. Cubby died during the planning stages. The argument can be made this is the first film that is wholly under Barbara and Michael's reign. And we'll see something in this film that is very, very indicative of their reign. There was a writer's strike, which kind of made it difficult to get rewrites done Mm -hmm. to the script. Many of the actors did not get the script till very close to a starting time. Mm-hmm. They were originally planning on setting it in China. And in fact, that whole sequence with Butcher's compound, yeah. which is in that Aztec-looking uh, place, you're right. Aztec would... was supposed to take place in the Forbidden City. Really? But yeah. they could not get permit from the Chinese government mm. to shoot gotcha. in certain areas. And also, there were some problems where the British government discontinued a certain tax break. Mm-hmm. That made it easy for British films to be made. So they had to kind of economize a bit and relocated the entire film to Mexico. Once again, because they knew they were dealing with Timothy Dalton and they were dealing with a much harder Bond. This is probably the most personal story of any Bond movie until we get to the Daniel Craig films. The whole idea was let's do a film where Bond goes against his own 
employer for personal reasons. Because of that, instead of bringing back the goofy Texan guy, they chose to reach out to David Hennison ah, to yeah. play Felix Leiter, who was until Jeff- Jeffrey Wright. What's the Jeffrey name? Wright, Wright, yes, was the only actor to play Felix Leiter right, twice. twice. They decided to use something that was very common concern in 1989, which was the cocaine trade. Oh, yeah. Yeah, during the 80s, for those of you who were too young to remember, yeah. that was when cocaine blew up big time. Cocaine use was rampant right. in this country. I mean, where formerly it had been considered a rich man's drug, right. suddenly it was made available to everybody, and more importantly, affordable mm-hmm. to everybody. If you had 20 bucks in your pocket... Well, really, yourself. this was about the time that you know, yeah. crack cocaine, which right. was a low... Derivative. My problem with it, I'm not as big a fan of this film as I am of the first one. I know that you think of it much more highly than I do. Part of the problem with it is that I think it's very generic. When we look at the fact that, okay, they decided to deal with the cocaine trade. I have no objection with Bond dealing with drug dealers. Because, of course, he dealt with in the books. In the books, right. A Live and Let Die was about drug dealers. Exactly. My problem was, though, is that cocaine was a major turning point in the Lethal Weapon series... Mm. In Scarface, in Fatal Beauty, in any one of a... And this is, I think, my biggest knock against this film, is that it's an American action film that Bond somehow wanders into. (laughs) Because this is a personal mission of revenge for Bond. So that's why it's pretty linear and straight on ahead. Okay, we know who the bad guy is. Right. We know from the second scene in the film. Yeah. Because the film opens with Bond, Felix Leiter, and a character called Sharky. Okay. Who I always thought was supposed to be Quarrel. I guess they realized, oh, we killed Quarrel off. Yeah, we killed Quarrel. So Sharky is obviously supposed to be the Quarrel stand-in. All dressed up in gray tuxedos and top top hats in a limousine. And we learn that they're driving to Felix's wedding. However, helicopter stops them because we've learned from a very brief sequence, which includes, by the way, a cameo by Michael G. Wilson. Sanchez! has invaded American space. And so, a DEA helicopter, because it turns out Felix has retired from the CIA and is now working for the for DEA, the DEA. lands in front of the limo, tells them that they can get Sanchez. Because they're in Miami. And right. And he's flying back. They want to get him. This is, yeah, their, this this is, is their time. This is it. This whole sequence was and, shot in and around Key West. And I also want to mention that the guy who jumps off the helicopter and forms mm-hmm. is played by that actor a lot of people from the 60s and 70s know because he was in a lot of black exploitation movies, Rafer Johnson. Right. Felix says, James, I want you to delay the wedding as much as possible. And James says, are you kidding me, Felix? I'm going with you. And he says, there's no way I'm going back to your wife and telling her that yeah, I let exactly. you go catch a drug dealer. Right. And he figures the fastest way to go ahead to which and Felix goes, okay, so he says, you can come. Has an observer. And they stick Sharky with yes. the job. They said, well, you yeah. go delay the wedding. <laughs> then we cut to some unspecified place in Key West where the absolutely amazingly fucking beautiful Talisa Soto is lying in bed with some Latino boy toy. Mm-hmm. When they are interrupted by Robert Davi, Robert Davi, as we learned, a former opera singer mm-hmm. turned actor playing Franz Sanchez. He breaks in on them while they're in Corpus Delecti, accompanied by various goons, including the actor who played the youngest Bond henchman ever, Benicio Toro. Yeah. This is only his second film. This is his second film, role Playing Dario. He's no Necros. To say the least. Whereas Necros had those wacky earphones that he used to strangle people with, mm-hmm. Dario has a little flick knife. That, that looks is like a, a Swiss Army knife yeah, blade. That is apparently gimmicked so that you know, it's hidden in his sleeve and he can shoot it out. I look at him and I expect him to break out in one of the tunes from West Side it's Story. It's a weird, weird performance. We'll get to some of his weirdness later on. He says, oh, so this man has won your heart, eh? And he turns to her, oh, cut out his heart and give it to her. Yeah, give it to her, yeah. And then he pulls out 
the freaking stingray whip. It's a stingray. It's, yeah, a, it's yeah, a stingray it's a, tail. It's a whip made from a stingray's tail. Okay, Talisa Soto is not the greatest actress in the world. I'll be the first to admit it. Well, but that, well, she sells this scene, and she sells several other scenes in this film, like her life depends on. Well, it. as we said many times on this thing, Bond girls were not selected for their acting ability. Mm-hmm. They were selected because they were hot looking, and then and Talisa Soto is uber hot. And then on the merits of their acting, I guess they trusted that. It, well, in the editing room, we yeah. can fix it. <laughs> but no, I think that there are moments where she really sells it, and, okay. I, and this is one of them because she looks like she's in agony. You are blinded by her beauty. She's, she's gorgeous. And I, yeah. I look she's at the sexiest unibrow I've ever seen. She's all right. Come on. She's all right. Uh, come on. I, I'm sorry. I have to fight you. She on that doesn't one. turn my crank. What okay. Am I okay. You? She's okay. We fast forward. They're about to leave, and the DEA arrives. Felix gives Bond a gun, and they go off after Sanchez. Right. There's a big gunfight. At one point, Bond comes across Lupe, the Felicia Soto character. They don't have a lot of scenes together, but this is another thing that I think is really good about Soto, is there is a definite chemistry. Very early on. She's got very expressive eyes. Now, yeah. I'll give you that. Yeah. You can look at her eyes, and you can see what she's thinking. But she's like, like, please leave me alone. She's really shaken up. Well, let somebody beat you yeah. with a stingray tail in And see how chipper you are, but, my but friend. Derek, compare her scenes with Dalton, with the scenes that Dalton has with Carrie Lowell. I don't think much of her either. Oh, I think Carrie Lowell has has no chemistry with Dalton whatsoever. These are two bar women that really don't look at them and they're all right. They get into this fight, a lot of people get shot, but Sanchez still makes off on this Piper Cub. So, they get back on the helicopter helicopter, and Bond decides, I'm going to go fishing. So they maneuver the helicopter so it's a little bit over the Piper Cub. Then Bond lowers himself on a winch. Well, there's a Coast Guard. Yeah, yeah, so it's, it's got the rescue winch on the side where they can lower the, the scenes thing. of Vaughn being lowered mm-hmm. that's Dalton because they were, he was too close to the prop the scenes where he is attaching the skyhook that's being done by the stuntman crew understandable but once again I want to emphasize at the end of this film when we get to the tanker chase mm-hmm. about 75% of that is Dalton. Dalton is on top of those trucks. Cool. He's having... Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. He's well, having the fight scenes with the machetes with Robert Davi. There are shots in there where it's unmistakable. He's not a stuntman. That's Dalton doing that. They managed to, out of the sky, disable this plane. Well, they just yank it. Yeah, they just yank it back. Yeah, presumably, yeah. this is a Piper Cub. Right. Isn't that what they train student mm-hmm. pilots on? Yeah. And this is, for all intents and purposes, a military helicopter. Right. So they just tow the whole sucker So back. the Coast Guard helicopter flies over a church. Mm-hmm. Where is waiting Sharky and Priscilla Barnes, who plays <laughs> Delia? Now, I've heard a number of people complain that Priscilla Barnes is too young for David Hedison. I would disagree because she's obviously an older woman. She's an incredibly beautiful older woman. Mm-hmm. I would put her in her 40s or thereabouts. Yeah. So I don't see what the problem is with her marrying David Hedison. Felix comes out and he's looking down at Delia and he's shaking his, his, his top hat going, See, honey, I made it. Mm-hmm. And they both jump out. And parachute down. <laughs> Which, of course, the guests, they yeah. think this was planned. Because they all, they're like, yeah, 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 you know. And they parachute, and they walk into the church with the parachute. Yeah. So they don't bother Still taking dangling. off the parachute. Yeah. Which leads us to the last of the Maurice Binder credit sequences. More of the same bullshit. The actress with the gun sweeping around. But the, the woman- theme song is sung by Gladys Knight. Yes. Yeah. It's not a good theme song, though. But it reminds you of the great Shirley Bassett, yeah. though. Gladys Knight gives it that type of right. bigness. License to Kill, it's called. Because what they found out when they did test screenings was 
that there was a small percentage of the American public who didn't know what the revoke meant. So they change it. Generic. Don't get me started. Generic. France is taken into a, to jail. Because he's being led away, he's saying, oh, I'm going to be out, I'm going to be out. Because as we find out, he's got a standing order yeah. for anybody in the world. If he's ever captured any time, anybody breaks dollars. them out. A million dollars. Tax-free cash. If anybody breaks me out. And he is being interrogated by the district attorney, played by Everett McGill. Yeah. Who is, we know from Twin Peaks. Yes. And also Quest from one of your people under the stairs. People under the stairs. Quest for fire. Right. He's like, oh, that famous million dollars. I think I'll put it up to two million. And he looks at McGill significantly. I know that there's a lot of you out there saying, a million dollars. But remember, this is back in the 80s when a million dollars was was still considered to be a lot of money. So we cut back to the the, wedding. Actually, to the reception reception, afterwards. We're assumed being held in Felix's house. Bond goes to get Felix, and Felix is busy working. And this is the first time we see the main Bond girl for this film, Pam Bouvier, played Mm -hmm. by former model and wife of Griffin Dunn, Carrie Lowell, who is, how shall I put it, about as expressive as a plank of wood. (laughs) I did not like this Apparently character. her acting style is that whenever anything happens, her method of reacting is just to open up her eyes slightly. She opens up her eyes yeah. and, and compresses her lips. That's her reaction to everything. Right. <laughs> and she's wearing this horrible, horrible orange wig in the, for this first that scene. That w- wouldn't fool yeah. my three-year-old niece. He finishes up with Pam. They go off. He presents Bond with a lighter. Yeah, him and his wife. With all our love, Felix and Delia. You know one thing that weirds me out? What? About, I know that Bond is one of Felix's best friends. They yeah. save each other's life. But doesn't it seem like his wife is really overly affectionate to him? There is that scene when she's waltzing him into the room, which is kind of a little creepy. She's kissing him every 30 yeah. seconds. And makes that big deal about presenting him with the garter. Yeah. I don't know. It just seems to me that she's a little bit overly affectionate yeah. toward James. And you mean that Felix never before mentioned yeah. that he was married because he gets that kind of melancholy yeah. look on the face? She's well, like, we're not to that point yet. We cut to Sanchez being transported to, I guess, a federal prison. Lockup by Everett McGill. Who then turns on the drivers and assists in Sanchez's escape. It's the end of the night. Bond is getting ready to go. Delia does this big deal where she presents him with the garter belt. And he goes, no, thank you. And that's when Felix explains he got married. He was married once a long time ago. You mean he never brought it up to her before now? Because I know women, right? The funny thing about women is that when they meet you, within the first five or ten seconds of meeting any man, they want to know, is he married or not? The type of person that she knew Felix's best friend was single. She'd be fixing him up immediately. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I find that whole vibe between them kind of weird anyway. Yeah. I don't think Bond would boink her. No. But then again, he is James Bond, so That's who true. knows? Here he is. He's James, James Bond. Bond. He'll he... fuck anyone. He'll boink you know, with your girlfriend. <laughs> they go back into their house and are met by Dario. They knock out Felix and then proceed to menace... Delia in some way. Mm, they leave it up to our imagination. Yeah. Which leads, once again, this is a, a definite sign that this is not your Roger Moore Bond. Because we then cut to the facility of Milton Crest, who's played by noted TV actor Anthony Zerba. Anthony Zerba, yeah. Who was named after a character in the Hildebrandt Rarity short story, where Leiter is strung up on one end of a hoist 
The yeah. other end, a big piece of meat is put on. Yeah, well, gets, it counters his yeah. weight. Yeah, it's and then they let a shark in. Lighter's going, why did you do this? And like, every McGill goes, $2 million is a lot of money, big buddy. Mm-hmm. The shark comes in and starts eating the meat, which lowers Felix into the water. Once Felix gets in, the shark starts eating Start him. Start eating him. And then we get this weird line reading from Benicio de Toro. Oh, don't worry about your wife. We gave her a nice honeymoon. Yeah, yeah, yeah like he's howling at the moon yeah, or something. what the fuck? <laughs> And it's not because you're the Wolfman, Benicio. That didn't happen for 20 years. The only thing that I could just say, it was only a second movie. So. Yeah. <laughs> and he's got like this droopy-eyed, leery yeah. thing. He in. looks like he's half asleep throughout the entire film. Oh, a drugged up one. Some quaaludes or something. I don't know. And then it turns out that, well, we can guess what they've done to Delia. Bond is about to go back to England. He's actually at the airport. Yeah, he's when getting the he ticket. Yeah. Here's a report. He hears that Sanchez has been released, puts two and two together, rushes back to Felix's house. There's Felix wrapped up in some canvas. There's Delia lying on the bed, dead. Presumably, presumably violated. Yeah, presumably very badly violated with this glassy look in her eyes. Felix is wrapped up in this canvas, horribly mangled, mm-hmm. with a note saying he, he disagreed, he disagreed with, with something that ate Which him. is a direct reference to the novel Live and Let Die. Well, that whole scene where Felix being yeah. eaten by the shark, and t- that yeah. was a scene in Live and Let Die. And it turns out that they didn't kill him. They just let the shark eat a right. pretty good chunk. <laughs> his <laughs> arm is gone, and I think most of his right. legs, but he's still left alive. So he goes to visit Felix in the hospital, who he's not doing well, obviously, because, mm. hey, and he learns from Felix's DEA contact mm-hmm. that they can't do anything. Their hands are tied. Yeah, Sanchez has escaped back across the border and He's there's no back extradition. In South America and the country there has no extradition treaty. As the guy explains to him, this is back with the drug cartels, they ran whole country. Sanchez, as we can see later on, he's got the generals, the Which army comes to that, that speech yeah. that he said at the top of the hour about mm. first you bribe a police officer. Yeah. Then you have, that's not enough, so you have to bribe a mayor. Next thing you know, you're bribing the president and you own the whole country. So he and Sharky decide they're going to take things into their own hands. They go to Crest's office, which by the way features a vehicle called the Shark Hunter 2, which is built by the same person who built the Lotus Submarine from Spy Love Me and all the undersea stuff mm-hmm. from For Your Eyes Only. He goes into the thing that he's working for Universal Export and they've been commissioned to transport a shark, but Crest is going, no, we, we sold all our sharks a long time ago, we're only <laughs> doing research. That doesn't phase Bond. He comes back at night and takes out one guy by locking him into a thing full of maggots. You know, why did they have the maggots? That was never made clear to me. Fish food. Throws another guy into an electric eel tank. Runs across Everett McGill. And he goes, hey, hey why'd you do that? I said, oh, $2 million is a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. That's his mantra. Yeah, $2 million is a lot, lot of money, money, old buddy. He lets the shark in and is going to drop Bond in there, but Bond drops him in there. Yeah. Bond has a suitcase full of money and yeah. the guy said, oh, well, I guess you're going to take it in there. Bond said, no, you earned it. That's that's when he knocks the guy, that, yeah. dropping the money on him. It reminds me of the thing where Roger Moore kicked the car off the yeah. cliff. So, so long, Mr. Scummy DA guy. Yeah. At which point, <laughs> he's coming back from this and he's met by the DA agent and says, uh, we have some people who want to talk to you. And they go to the Hemingway Hotel, where Ernest Hemingway used to live, which is why we get the exchange later on about a farewell to arms. M is there waiting for him, mm-hmm. telling him, This private vendetta of yours could easily compromise Her Majesty's government. You have an assignment, and I expect you to carry it out objectively and professionally. Then you have my resignation, sir. We're not a country club, 007. He's like, well, then I have to revoke your license effective immediately. Please hand in your gun. And Bond says, big fuck you. Yeah. And leaves. There's no other way to put it. He gets chased. 
but gets by agents of his own organization. And they're firing on him, but M says, no, there's too many civilians. And so he disappears. So him and Sharky go and follow the next step up the chain, which is Crest. Mm -hmm. And Crest is left on his yacht Mm -hmm. for some strange reason. They decide to go find out. And there's this wonderful sequence where Zerbi is on the boat, Lupe is on the boat, and it's obvious that Zerbi wants a little bit of Loopy love. Oh, yeah. He wants a little unibrow action. Apparently... The fact that this guy is crazy enough to whip the shit out of his girlfriend yeah. with a stingray tail mm-hmm. doesn't faze him in the slightest. Well, there's that whole line early on in the film where Sanchez says, I value loyalty more than anything. Yeah, that's the same thing. And Serbi's like going, are you kidding me? He trusts me. You know, he and I have done this for years. Because apparently this is how Sanchez is smuggling his cocaine mm-hmm. into, into the United States. Yeah, using Crest submersible vehicles. Mm-hmm. They pack right. it full of cocaine and just go underwater. That's right. how it gets into the United States. He gets called away because there's some sort of disturbance. He looks, and there's what looks to be a manta ray flying. Mm-hmm. Turns out, though, it's actually a very clever disguise that Bond is you wearing on the, on the, the ocean floor. Bond seems to have a thing for disguising himself as sea creatures. That's he true. Did, he did the crocodile right? thing. But this one isn't done for comedy reasons. Well, you yeah. know what I think? Is, I think it is an actual stingray that they probably right. stuff, and he's hanging yeah. on to the underside of it. There's handholds. So he infiltrates the boat, runs into Lupe again, and once again, I'm sorry. Who doesn't blow the whistle on him. Who doesn't blow the whistle on him. Because very important to realize something. Even though she knows, having seen him right. from back, she knows that he does mean Sanchez no good. Right. Manages to find where the cocaine is. After the exchange, Crest gives the money over to Sanchez's representative. Mm-hmm. And then he's alerted to something going on down below because Bond is knocked off the thing and is destroying the cocaine. Right. We also learned, by the way, that Sharky got caught and, in fact, was killed. And one of them goes, hey, you want to know what the funny thing is? His real name was Sharky. Uh, yeah. And it's worth mentioning that the guy who plays Sharky is a guy we usually associate with comedic roles. Mm-hmm. So there's this vicious fight scene underwater. It's like five guys on Bond. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they rip open his air hole. They do everything they can to damage him. It actually looks like he's not going to get away yeah. for a minute because he can't breathe. He's losing air. Fires he the... fires the harpoon right, onto right. the plane's right, the platoon. Spirit. The plane is already taking off, so he gets pulled along by the plane. Right. And you actually get to see barefoot water skiing behind the boat. Mm-hmm. Manages to climb up onto it, kill the two guys, throw them out, and flies away with, with the, the money. money. <laughs> Thereby bankrolling his Because right. of course he's no longer got the Secret Service right. Behind the British Secret Service So now that's his bankroll right. He's going to use Sanchez's own money against him He sneaks into Felix's house Which is now a crime scene Because he saw that Felix cr- secreted Whatever disc yeah. he was working on at the time he, Behind a picture of Dilly. A photo of right He looks through the thing He notices there's All the contacts have been killed Except for one key Bouvier Right And there's a meat set up for the Barrelhead Bar which is a weird place. There's this one dumpy looking woman in the center doing this dance. Yeah. He meets, and it's the girl from the beginning of the film. It's a set that looks like a movie set. Yeah, it, doesn't it does. Look, it doesn't look at all realistic. No, it doesn't. It looks like a movie set. There's nothing real about it at all. Doesn't look like any bar I've ever been into, at least. Let me put it that right. way. So he meets Pam Bouvier for the first time, who explains that she was his contact with the CIA, yada, yada, yada. They are interrupted by Dario. Mm-hmm. This is probably where you're, you're thinking you're Yeah. And some men. There's a really fakey, fakey fight scene. It's not a very Looks like, scene at all. It looks like something from out of an old B-movie western, to be honest. And ends when Pam shoots her shotgun, because she has a shotgun secreted under the, the table, mm-hmm. into the wall to create a very fake-looking hole 
Yeah. Which they both escaped. Yeah, well, it's so even. If you're looking at the edges of the hole, it's so obvious that this was rigged by the special effects yeah, guy and they blew out the wall. They escaped by the speedboat. The, the, the speedboat's lines have been cut, so they end up stranded. Right. Which leads to one of the most awkward Bond love scenes I've ever seen. Well, they shoot the boat and yeah. they shoot the gas tank because they yeah. also shoot some, you know, yeah. in the back. But and she's got Bond, the thing on. Right. Bond thinks she's dead, but she's wearing a bulletproof right. vest. And she's like, oh, out of gas. I never heard that before. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, it, it's really bad. You look at your. But the ultimate thing is he hires her to fly because she knows Isma City, which is where Sanchez is located. Right, that's his headquarters. She knows it better than anybody alive right now. Mm-hmm. And he hires her to, dr- to fly down there. Which starts the first of uh, the many interminable scenes. And I can't stand yeah. it because he's like, every 10 minutes, Bond is saying, okay, now it's time for you to go home. Oh, now yeah, he does that constantly. Go- oh, man, the bitch ain't going yeah, home, James. Like, when are you going to get it? <laughs> so they get a thing oh. in the finest hotel in Isma City, which is, of course, owned by Sanchez. And she is posing as his assistant, Miss Kennedy. Miss Kennedy. And she's yeah. not happy about it. It. Whenever she's angry, Carrie Lowell has this thing where she, her eyes get like kind of a little cross-eyed and yeah. her lips get like really, really tight. Once again, plank of wood. She's not a very appealing actress. And I can see the writers now, you're chuckling. Oh, that's such a clever gag yeah. by having her go by the alias of Miss Kennedy. As right. We're not going to get that. And he gives her a lot of money so she can go look the part. Then he goes to the local bank, which is actually the Mexico City Post Office, to deposit the $4 million dollars. He stole from Sanchez. And to establish himself. A line, a line of credit. A line of credit in the casino. Yeah. To which case, has the quote-unquote president of the bank says, the person who owns the bank also owns the casino. Which is Sanchez, of course. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, we get a little hint as to how Sanchez's operation works. Sanchez is there with his pet iguana, mm-hmm. who apparently speaks to him. Because every once in a while, the, the iguana will, will lift its head, and he looks like he's actually listening to what's Yeah, the, that wears a diamond collar, oh, yeah. by the way. And we're introduced to his financial advisor, who's played by... And this is such a weird... Of synchronicity, an actor named Anthony Stark. Really? Interesting. Yes. We were also introduced via television to Dr. Joe Butcher, mm-hmm. played by Wayne Newton, okay. who is the head of a cult, and we learn how the operation works, which is that Butcher has code words based on donation. So if they wanted to up the price to $500 a kilo, Butcher will go, we have 500 temples here. Mm-hmm. All looking to raise X amount of money. Right. And then they get phone calls from the various people who are buying. Right, from the various drug dealers in and various depending cities. Upon, right. Yeah. Depending on how much money they donate, that's how many kilos they How many they kilos they're going to get, yeah. Right. Also, they're showing around throughout this sequence a bunch of Japanese gentlemen for reasons we don't know yet. We mm-hmm. learn later on that they are, well, well, we'll get to that later. But Sanchez has another guy, his head of security. Yeah, but he's kind of generic. All of his henchmen yeah. are pretty generic. I mean, Dario doesn't stand out. The only thing that's memorable about Stark him is... stands out a bit. Other guys that hinted that he was like a former CIA yeah. guy that went rogue himself and now he's working for well, the Sanchez. Thing, the thing that I find fascinating about Sanchez's organization is that there's a lot of young people in it. Yeah. Stark, he looks like he's a peer of Dario. He looks oh, he looks like, like he just 20. got out of high school. That night, Bond and Bouvier go down to gamble. Obviously, he's Bond, he's in a casino, he's making a big stink mm-hmm. of winning. And even after her makeup, even then, Carrie Lowell still doesn't look like... She's wearing that beaded dress which has the, the tearaway skirt. Yeah. I'm so, I just don't see anything in her. Yeah, she's flavorless. The pit boss calls to the Sanchez and says... Oh, this guy's playing like a dickhead. Yeah. So he sends Lupe down to make him lose. But of course, Lupe's having this little private conversation with Bond. Yeah. And eventually, Bond convinces her to bring him up to Sanchez, who takes his passport, takes his gun, 
Says, oh, we have no crime in this city. Yeah, you don't need I'll this. hold on to this for a few days. Now, the good thing about this is that Sanchez has his head of security yeah. guy check up on yeah. Bond. And, of course, since he's actually been fired, that's on mm-hmm. his file for real. James Bond has went rogue. And, and Bond it, is saying, I have talents that are of use to a person like you, and I hear you pay for loyalty mm-hmm. very well. We then cut back to Universal Exports, where M comes across a moping Carolyn Bliss in her only scene in this entire film. She has, like, about three lines. I think this is why they recast when Brosnan came along. Because so little to do that she almost doesn't register on the... Well, yeah, I mean, it could be played by anybody. And he's a little annoyed because she's apparently been using resources of MI6 to, to keep track of her. Yeah. And says, you stop this right this minute. Kind of upset after M leaves, she calls Q. And we don't know what goes on after that. But one of the things about this movie, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're M, you're the head of mm-hmm. the, the British Secret Service. One of your most valuable agents has just went rogue, mm-hmm. an agent with all kinds of information in his head. Right. You don't send out a hit squad after him, say, listen, you get one chance to bring 007 back. If he doesn't come back, kill him. Well, there is that one guy later on. But the point I'm trying to make yeah. is that M really doesn't seem too concerned mm-hmm. about you letting Bond run around. So this prompts Q to go and help him. He goes out into the field. Into the field. And in fact, this is probably the most screen time Desmond Llewellyn has ever had in the series. This is the second time he's actually gone yeah. uh, since Octopussy. And you he's know, got like a major Bond. role in this film. Yeah, yeah. And this is what I'm saying about the fact that, at least for the duration of the Dalton films, there's a very familial relationship between the two of them. Because in the scene where they're going back up to Bond's room, and he borrows Bouvier's gun, yeah. and he breaks in and That's when we see the, the breakaway skirt. <laughs> Really, 007. Q, what the hell are you doing here? I might have killed you. And Pam Bowie said, well, who's this? And he said, well, this is my uncle. Several times during the film, that's how he right. refers to Q. And you almost come to believe it from and the way Q that they And Q brought toys. To be precise, a signature gun, which is an actual armament. Yeah. Which allows you, through fingerprints, to make it so that only you can fire only the gun. Only you can fire the gun. There's also a goofy Polaroid camera that shoots out a laser beam. It takes x-ray photos. It takes x-ray photos, which is never used in the film, other than that, that one gag. Toothpaste that's actually yes. plastic explosive. <laughs> that leads us up to that night. Mm-hmm. Where Bond goes to sneaks up onto the meeting room that Sanchez is having a meeting with these Japanese gentlemen. So he sets up the the plastic explosive uh, right outside the window because earlier he noticed that it was made out of armalite. Right? Yeah, you can't shoot through it. Um, but his plan is to blow it out and then take out Sanchez yes. with a shot. And we now learn what Sanchez's plan is, mm-hmm. why he's been showing these Japanese people around. Which is that now that he's got this operation pretty much perfected, he's offering franchises to other criminal organizations. He wants to be the McDonald's yeah. of drug dealers. Pretty much. <laughs> but he's got this new method where he can actually dissolve the cocaine in gasoline. Mm-hmm. I don't know how well that would work, but that's how they would transport it now. Right. And it's undetectable, and he's got a secret process. Getting the cocaine out of the gasoline right. and turning it back into its natural so, state. He used to say, Bond causes a ruckus. Oh, yeah. And it's attacked by ninjas. There's no other way to put it. They're ninjas. Yeah, they're ninjas. They're, they're two ninjas who knock him out, take him somewhere. Then when he wakes up, Kari Tamaguchi is standing over him. It turns out that he's from Hong Kong Vice. Yeah. And they've been planning this operation, and they're one step away from being taken to the yeah, actual processing, processing plant where Sanchez is doing this project. And Bond yeah. screwed it up. And he's freaking pissed at him. And along comes some generic MI6 goon. We're right. going to drug him and take him back. Mm-hmm. That's, of course, when the Isthmus City Armory comes up mm-hmm. to retaliate for the explosion. Because mm-hmm. they think that these weirdos did it. And during the course of all the confusion... Well, they kill everybody except for Bond. Except for Bond. Because he's laying strapped to the table. Which actually saves his life right. because... Sanchez says, nah, don't kill him. I, I want right. to find out why they were talking to him. He said, bring him to me. When he wakes up, 
Bond finds himself in this beautiful mansion with this weird ass looking piece of sculpture <laughs> with, his, <laughs> with a, 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 a dog fish face with a, a, I look with at that thing face. who would want to have that ugly looking <laughs> piece of shit in their house this is actually the mansion of a dear friend of Cubby Bracola's oh my god a count of all people who lent it out to them for the duration of the well if you gotta have friends and Sanchez comes in and basically says well what were you doing there though they were a high powered hit squad and they were sent to kill you they found me and they were going to kill me and it's weird because all of a sudden Sanchez is kind of buddy buddy with him well I guess because he's talking about the Japanese Secret Service that other guy was so and so and all these people are after you and Sanchez said well, why are they after you and he you know. kind of implies that the person who hired this hit squad was Milton Crest now he's seen where he can sow the seeds of discontent this is a motif that we've seen in past James Bond movies that he turns the villain's own strength against yeah. him in order to destroy him because the whole thing with Sanchez is loyalty, but now you start yeah. playing this. Well, they mentioned the name of somebody so and so that they were supposed to meet, and it's somebody in your organization. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you see Sanchez going, huh? Sanchez, we'll have to do some business. Lupe will take care of you. The head of security tells him, oh yeah, this guy checks out. He's James Bond. He was a, a secret agent, but he got fired. Yeah. And which only, of course, feeds into this mania. By the way, I also want to mention that Sanchez is the first, last, and only Bond villain ever to wear pink. But Robert Davi is a guy. Yes. He looks like you can wear any freaking thing right. you want, man. I'm not right. going to say anything about it. That's a nice little scene because his head of security comes up and says, hey, you never guess who this guy is. Yeah. And Sanchez says, oh, well, he's James Bond. Yeah. Oh, British. Hey, how does he know? Yeah. know? <laughs> he said, I asked him. So now Bond is going out. Who tipped MI6 off? And he thinks it must have been. Movie at. So he, your But Lupe comes to him and says, Well, James, you gotta get out of here. You gotta get the fuck out of here. They're gonna kill you. And he goes. And she actually helps him. Right, he helps him escape by pretending to be the dumb brunette. She takes the boat and she's going shopping. And the guy says, Well, hold on, I'll get somebody to go with you. She says, I can't hear you. And she takes the boat. And Bond is is like, out of the boat. Bond then goes back to his hotel room, grabs Bouvier, drags her into her bedroom. Trains the gun on her is about to kill her. Oh, yeah, yeah, there's no doubt he's going to blow her brains out. Here comes a part which I don't think we even needed in the film. Yeah. Pam reveals that earlier Sanchez got a hold of his Stinger missiles and they're planning on <laughs> shooting down a commercial airliner in retaliation for some such bullshit. That's why she insisted on staying with him. This is her big emotional moment, and she does not sell it one little bit. I didn't buy anything of what she was doing. thing is, this Stinger missile thing is almost as like it came up with it at the last minute. It's totally unnecessary because now Sanchez is not just a drug dealer, but he's a terrorist now as well. And outside of the fact that the Stinger missiles play a part in the climax, there's no reason for them to be there. And there's no reason why Sanchez want to shoot down a commercial from what we can see. He's making billions from the drug trade. What could they possibly... He is protected by this country. Got the army in his yeah. pocket. What could whoever it is, what could they possibly offer him that he would want that he couldn't buy? It's a plot element that's pulled out of nowhere to give Bouvier a reason to keep staying. Because like we have said earlier, every 10 minutes, Bond is saying, okay, go home, go, go home, home, go home. home. And she's, I'm not going home. Go home, go home. They play out that scene and so several much. Times. In fact, during this scene, he tells... Cue to pack their bags because they're going home. When they're done with this emotional outpouring and he apologizes mm-hmm. and they come out of the bedroom, there's Q with the bags. Like, unpack Q. <laughs> yeah, you're staying here. And I would have loved to see the conversation that Q had with him when he said, well, I'm going down to South America to yeah. help out 007. Yo, what? <laughs> I'd like to think that Q didn't say it that way. Q just said, I'm taking my leave. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. I, I'm allowed three months leave time. You get the impression that Q is probably one of those guys that's got so much vacation time. So much, yeah. He could probably take a year off because he, he's probably a guy that works all the time. Mm-hmm. Their next step is, of course, to frame Crest. And it's funny because at one point they refer to Felix as being dead, yeah. which is weird because it comes out of nowhere. And he shows up at the and end. We see him alive and well at the end. Yeah. Yeah. So what they do is they have Pam disguise herself has the harbor master pilot. Then she goes crazy, just rams the crest's yacht into the harbor. And it's worth mentioning that Sanchez is coming for the express purpose yeah. to find out what happened to his fucking money. Right. Chris, so some guy stole your money. What do you mean? You let somebody steal yes. four million dollars of my money? Because he asked Lupe, well, did you see anything? And I Lupe didn't said, see nothing. I see well, at this point, it's very <laughs> obvious that Lupe really, really likes Bond. And I think this is another major contention point in the film because it's, I know that you're saying neither of them do, do anything for you. But it's so obvious to me that Soto has chemistry with Dalton. Whereas, I'll give you that. Yes, Lowell has not. Yeah. There is definitely yeah. sparkage. She's got about as much emotion as a plank of wood. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sorry. They have it run in such a way so that while Sanchez is greeting Crest, mm-hmm. Bouvier and Bond sneak on board through the underwater dock inside the yacht. Right. He took out $2 million. Of the, yeah. He didn't take it all out. He took yeah. just enough to convince Sanchez, and they put it inside the, the decompression, decompression. decompression chamber, mm-hmm. which we saw in use earlier in the film. Pam takes off her Harbor Master uniform, and there's it's weird because it'd be, it's like a flesh-colored bathing suit, but it, it looks like a piece of lingerie. It's really a weird-looking outfit. Mm-hmm. And then they hide. Then we cut to Crest giving this explanation, and he's like, so let me get this straight. <laughs> He water skied after the boat, climbed onto it, killed the pilot, and flew away. To which Darren replies, like a bird. Hey, you know, so you got to give Robert Davi and Anthony Zerbe credit for this yeah. scene. Because the way Chris is explained, it does sound like a bag of bullshit. Yeah. And, and what were you doing while yes. he was doing all of this? Yes. And he says his other guys, listen, search the boat. Find right. my money. And they find the money in the decompression mm-hmm. chamber. Takes it. And once again, this is a very American action movie scene. Mm-hmm. They take Zerba, lock him in the decompression chamber, yeah, turn it on, and turn it on, and make him blow it up real good. Yeah, because he hits the cable, yeah. which I guess is the thing. And we get this scene where Crest's face expands yeah, inside. Yeah, it up. And, and to which point they go. Over. <laughs> What about the money, Patron? Launder it. Don't think that Sanchez's men aren't going to make sure that thing is spanked. I can even see them earning the money yeah. after they cleaned it to make sure now, it's... Sanchez gets blinded by loyalty, but he's no idiot. He is a little bit suspicious of Bond at this point. But, see, Bond is by now snuck back with and the he help goes, of the She goes rushing back home, and it's... And Sanchez pays him off. And pay, Yeah, he sees he's, he's been asleep all this time, so he says, all this information paid off. You did good by me, and I want you to go on a little trip with me. He's going to go on this trip with the, the potential investors. Right. To the site. And Lupe knows what's going on, though. It's like, he's going to trip up and he's going to get killed. And again, she comes in and says, Oh, James, you got, this movie is filled with yeah. people telling oh, other people, people that they go. got to leave. And they don't and go. he doesn't go. She goes to the hotel and she goes to Pam and's like, Oh, you have to help James. I love him so much. At which point Pam goes... Oh, I love this so much. Once again, it's like, you're not convincing anybody that but you're then jealous. we get that great shot of Q in the background. He's like, yeah, oh, his eyes. He's saying, like, all oh, this shit again. Because <laughs> <laughs> each of the women say, I love Jason, but I love James, too. And he won't leave. So and Sanchez is going to kill him. And, I, and he won't screw me. And he won't... <laughs> 
rather think that Bond tapped that ass. Okay, all right. Listen, I'd rather, I don't like her too much either, but I'd rather think that he tapped that than he tapped Bouvier, you know. Well, we know he tapped Bouvier. At the very end, he was definitely... There is at least two times where the implication is he tapped Bouvier. On the boat, before they go to Isthmus City. And it is totally lost on me, because I read online, I read these various polls where people have their favorite Bond girl, everything like that, and Carrie Lowell rates higher than Denise Richards. Well, that's because, and I know that one of your objections to when people bag on Denise Richards is that people say, oh, she's a nuclear scientist. Not that we don't accept that she's a nuclear scientist in the Bond world. Because we've seen Lois Childs as an astrophysicist, and she's not exactly a scientist. Uh, folks, you can't see this, but right now I'm putting my fingers in my ear. La, 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 okay. la, 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 <laughs> It's that Denise Richards con- is not a convincing scientist. She convinced me. No, I, I think and her breasts convinced and you of something else entirely. Her, yeah, her breasts could convince me just about anything. <laughs> Maybe if she wasn't dressed as a teenager throughout that film. In James Bond world, that's what nuclear scientists look like. Anyway, okay. I'm not saying... Uh, my complaint with Denise Richards is not that she was a nuclear scientist. It's that she wasn't a very good actress. So now they're going to the site now. They're driving the out to the site of Dr. Joseph Butcher's cult headquarters. Right. So they used a cultural center that was built for some reason out in the middle of nowhere outside of Mexico City. In one of our phone conversations, yeah. you made a good point. That actually both of us kind of wish that they had spent more time with the Joe Butcher character that's played by Wayne Newton. Yeah. Because he's... In the few scenes we have, we'll we'll get to that when we move to the summation of this film. Butcher's place hides the processing plant. Right. Which is where the demonstration is where they take the the cocaine, they they turn it into a liquid, they loot it through the gas. Put it in the gasoline. Because gasoline is heavier than the cocaine solution. They can use a centrifuge to separate it and then reconstitute it. Turn it back into its original form. So it's like the perfect way. Nobody's going to suspect it. Well, it's a religious retreat, so it's protected by a variety of laws that other places aren't. Meanwhile, Carrie Lowell, pretending to be some hick from South Dakota... With a bag full of money. With a bag full of money, is like, Oh, our temple sent me all the way here to meet with the doctor to give these donations. From No Neck, Nebraska. And, of course... And she's got to give it to him personally, of course. And Dr. Butcher's looking at her breasts and going, Hey, why don't you come talk to me personally? I'll give you a tour. And we can go in my... Personal, personal private, private meditation, meditation chamber. chamber. With yeah. my etching. Yes. However, Sanchez does figure out that the Bond is playing him dirty. Well, that's because everybody, when they go into the processing place, they have to wear these yeah. masks so they don't accidentally right. ingest any of the cocaine. When they go out, he won't take off his mask. And Dario is looking at him like, yep. I know this guy from somewhere. Oh, because it's the first time that Dario is, and Bond has been together since the fight. Right. And he's looking at him, and Bond is still got... And that scene is like kind of stupid because it's obvious everybody else has their mask yeah. on. Still, well, why are you still got your mask on? There's no reason we're out of it. Dario blows the whistle. Yeah. He Sanchez, said, of course, being a guy who loves loyalty, isn't too happy, and handcuffs Bond and puts him on the conveyor belt. The yeah. conveyor belt where the cocaine gets ground down into powder. And it's like, when it gets to your ankles, you'll be in so much agony, you'll be wanting me to kill you. When it gets to your knees, you'll be begging me to let you do anything to get it to stop. And Bond is trying to convince him that, oh, I'm loyal, I'm loyal. Say, oh, well, well, there's other people in your organization you don't know about. Sanchez says, I'll find them. Yeah. <laughs> don't worry about it. <laughs> And he leaves Dario to oversee oh, him. 
And then he says something that does catch his attention. Yeah. He says, well, I'm not the only one that knows about the Stingers. Remember? And he said, what do you know about Stingers? And at the same time, his boy, uh-huh. his head of security, he's stealing the Stingers. <laughs> and meanwhile, Dr. Butcher has gone Pambuvia up to his private meditation chamber and is trying to make him come to Jesus, if you will. Carol only having that. Well, she pulls a gun on Yeah, him. she breaks away. Bless your heart, darling. Yes. <laughs> That's like a signature phrase yeah. all throughout the whole movie. Not enough of Joe Butcher in this film. No, there isn't. I actually got a big kick out of seeing Wayne Newton in the James Bond movie. Bond and Dario are having this confrontation while he's getting fed into the cocaine. Lowell comes in to try Mm -hmm. to free him. It ends up with Dario falling into the... Grinder. So long, boring henchman guy. Oh, yeah. One of the most undistinguished henchmen in... uh... Meanwhile, the cocaine gasoline mixture is being fed into a bunch of tanker trucks and is about to roll out. Because we should mention that Sanchez's financial advisor he's freaking out because yeah. he's saying we're losing installation and Sanchez said well what we got in the tankers we can rebuild someplace right. else. The overhead it's like well then let's cut some. <laughs> yeah. And who does he decide to cut? The weird thing about Robert Davia Sanchez is that he's got elements both of the henchman and the major villain. Yeah. It's funny because he's supposed to be a low-born guy, but he's incredibly charming. And if anything, he's more so than Scaramanga. He's almost like the anti-Bond. You know what I like about Sanchez? I definitely got the definite impression from the way that Robert Davi played the character, because he mm-hmm. gave him shadings, that this is probably a guy that worked his way up Oh yeah, the no, it's with- He educated himself in the final things in life. But he still got that hard Much edge. like Bond, though. Right. That's yeah. why I'm saying he's almost yeah. like the anti-Bond, because that's the whole Bond backstory. He was an orphan. He yeah. went through equivalent of social services. Mm-hmm. He had to build his way up. When you strip away all the fanciness of both characters, mm-hmm. they're both just blunt weapons. Yeah. This begins this chase scene where you've got Carrie Lowell and the Piper Cub. She gets in the Piper Cub, so she's pursuing them. Bond going from tanker to tanker, trying to get to... Sanchez, who's Sanchez. in... No, he's in the Jeep in oh, the front. Oh, he's in the Jeep in the front. Okay. Right. I knew he was in the lead. Right, because he's got the stingers. Because he kills his head of security, who he caught trying to steal right. the stingers. And he's got the case full of stingers, because he uses a couple of them yeah. during the chase. Well, that leads to one of the most ridiculous stunts in the world. But it's a James Bond movie. It's a J- James Bond movie. Are known for their ridiculous okay. stunts. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. When the tanker does. Da, 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 here I am. On two wheels. Well, who else would James Bond to pull that off? It's still a silly looking stunt, and it's very Michael Bay. I like it. A lot of people think that was fake, but the guy. No, it's real. It, actually, yeah, they did with the two wheels yeah. where the cab pops a wheelie. Yeah. Where he has to go through the thing. They actually did that. I don't know. It's just it looks so silly to me. Both of those things. But you know what looked just as equally silly? And also with the stupid soundtrack. As a matter of fact, we were talking about it from the man with the golden gun. That yeah. would have been one of the best stunts if they didn't have that mm-hmm. pop goes the right. weasel kind of yeah. Right, the slide was the type mm-hmm. of thing. This ends up with Sanchez and Bond on top of a tanker with machetes, hacking at each other, fighting to the death. Because oh. the other two tankers are blown up. Yeah, because they try to blow up the tanker that Bond is driving with a stinger. With a stinger. But he uses the topography and the momentum of the truck to tip it over onto one side. And it goes and blows up the yeah. other one behind right. the other tanker. Sanchez says, God damn it. <laughs> And eventually, this tanker gets trashed. Well, the guy that's driving it, he just jumps out. And there they are. Bond is beat up pretty bad. Sanchez is standing over him, dripping with gasoline with the machete, getting ready to, like, chop. And he starts screaming at them, you could have had everything. There's a really good online magazine called 
Her Majesty's Secret Service, mm-hmm. which is about the Bond series. And there's an article in there where they posit that, much like a traditional Bond villain, Sanchez was a homosexual. And that one of the reasons he is so trusting of Bond is because he has a crush on him. Interesting. Which makes the whole line of, I would have given you everything. Mm-hmm. Puts a new spin, yeah, on, a new on, spin it, yeah. on it. And Bond just takes out the lighter that was established from the very first act, mm-hmm. opens it up, and sets Sanchez on fire. Right, because Sanchez asked him, well, why did you do this? Does Martin ever tell him because you, you killed my friend's wife? I don't, I don't think he ever tells him. I don't think he ever says anything. And he says him to hell without even the guy knowing yeah. why he did it. And so ends Fran Sanchez. Mm-hmm. And Lowell comes by in the Piper Cub, which has since lost both of its wings. <laughs> and she's kind of like driving around, like, you going to hop in or not? Oh, God. I hated this character. By that time, Bond, you can see it's been a long day for yeah. him. He doesn't look like he usually looks yeah. in his movies where Bond is all clean. Exactly. And that, That's the other thing I love about the Timothy Dalton Bond is that he gets fucked up. I mean, his clothes is ripped. Yeah. He's bruised. There's blood coming from mm-hmm. all over. He looks exhausted. Which anybody in their right mind, I don't care how good a shape you is, after you did all that, you're going to look. We now cut back to Sanchez's old palace. Uh-huh. Lupe is having a little party. Presumably she's taking it over. And Lupe pretty much says, stay with me. Be my whoopee. You can have all this. Bond observes Carrie Lowell, who's observed them doing this kind of clinch, mm. and she starts running with tears in her eyes, oh, that's such a and he says, oh, I'm sure you and the president will be mm. very happy together, and jumps into the pool, drags her in, and they embrace, and Patti LaBelle swells up on the soundtrack, and it's... In the another end. nice ending theme song. Now, this is one of my biggest problems, well, besides the fact, like I said, it's a generic American action movie. Here you had this one character who Dalton had a great deal of chemistry with. It was obvious that she really, really had feelings for him. And he throws her over for this shrill, obnoxious, dull character. Well, she was the good girl. Still, you know, every Bond movie's got the good girl and the bad girl, and mm-hmm. Bond ends up with the good girl. I would argue that Lupe isn't really a bad girl. Does oh, Lupe, she's Lupe, just misguided. No, no. Does Lupe do, do anything villain throughout this film? Listen, Lupe knew who she was getting in bed okay. with before she started. And who's to say that she didn't like them occasional beatings that she got? Uh, I don't know. She didn't look like she was enjoying the one that we saw. Well, I'm not arguing with you because, first of all, we know he can't hook up with Lupe because he's going to go back to work for the British. Even right. though they kind of leave that up in the air, we have no doubt that right. Bond's going to go back to work for the British Secret Service. Bond doesn't stay right. with one woman very long. Yeah, he stayed there for a while, but he finds excuses. But him ending up with Carrie Lowell either, she's like one of the worst Bond girls ever. Yeah. I'm sorry. I don't like her character. And that little stupid run, at the end, she sees them, and then she starts it. <laughs> and she Flouncy, flouncy, flouncy. Yeah, I mean, come on. But other than that, I'm not as big a fan of this one as I am of Living yeah. Daylights. And the problem with it is it's a generic American action film. It's a Michael Bay action movie that Bond wanders into. I think that they could have done more with James Bond quitting to go on this personal mission of revenge. I felt that they could have done more with the Butcher character. See, I think it would have been more of a James Bond movie if they had developed the Butcher character and made it. Hell, he's even got the perfect name. Dr. Joseph Butcher. Yeah. Huh. And made him into the main villain. Or have him and Sanchez be part. Well, they right. were partners. They were this partners. One, yeah. Built up his role a little bit more. Yeah. So that James Bond had Or made things. Sanchez fuse the two characters together. Made him like a cult leader. I think that thing would have made it more of a Bond film than what it was. I think we, we both agree that Sanchez is an interesting villain. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's one of the more interesting villains. Because I give the whole thing to Robert Dobby. Because he presents us with such interesting shadings mm-hmm. underneath. Right. What it could have been a generic. Because I hear most people, they 
complaint. They said, oh, well, this is the Miami Vice James Bond. But Robert Dobby's villain is a lot more complex than just another yeah. Miami Vice. He, well, we only have, like, one really decent Bond girl in Talisa Soto. Right. Uh, unfortunately, the main bulk of the film is taken up with Carrie Lowell, who is dull. The henchman's not very good. No. There's some interesting settings. I love the cultural compound. Yeah. It's one of the few Bonds set partially in America where the American setting works for it, I think, rather than against it. Mm. But I think overall, the genericness is what I take away from it. That you could take out James Bond and put in and Murdoch. Put in, and put in anybody. Murtaugh or John McClane. With a little bit of rewriting. Could have made another entry in the Lethal Weapon series. Yeah, Die Hard Down Mexico Way. This one did not do very well, but that was because, as we mentioned, it was swamped by all these other blockbuster yeah. movies. When they brought back the series with Pierce Brosnan, that's why we've only had James Bond movies released. They've gone back yeah. to releasing them in, in November. The, in November. Never again would you see another However, James Bond However, I want to speak a bit. We're going to spend a little bit. I mean, realize that you guys have been sitting with us for a very long time. We're going to spend a little bit of time to talk about the aftermath of License to Kill, so you understand that this was not a case of Timothy Dalton killing right. the series. We're going to put that to bed once and for okay. all, so you could tell your friends, no, Timothy Dalton did not kill the franchise. Here is what happened. Take it away, Tom. Eon Productions had started work on a third Timothy Dalton film. Which he had signed to he do. He had signed to do. It was called Property of a Lady. I cannot tell you what the plot was, because nobody knows. Even our good friends Ian Wilson and Adon Fisher, who are probably bigger Bond experts than we are can tell us what the plot is. However, what had happened was shortly after the release of License to Kill, MGM stepped in and tried to wrest the rights to the James Bond franchise Mm -hmm. away from Eon Productions. And this dragged on for seven years. MGM was in the process during the late 80s and early 90s of buying all these failed studios. Because they bought Orion. They bought United Artists. Exactly. That's why they're now with MGM UA. During the legal ranks, this case took seven years to untangle. Eon Productions were forbidden from putting out a James Bond film. They did try to keep the franchise alive by creating uh, the animated James, James Bond, Bond Jr. Jr. It was actually created back in 1967 by a British publisher. They had the rights to still do that. It only has 65 episodes. It's not very good at all. When everything shook out, MGM won. One thing to keep in mind when we get into these later films is that the Pierce Brosnan films and the Daniel Craig films, Barbara Bacoli and Michael G. Wilson are no longer working for themselves. Mm. They're working for a studio. Right. Which means that they are subject to the studio's whim, which is going to play, I think, a little bit of a role in some of the, the missteps we're going to see later on. They did still intend on continuing with Timothy Dalton. When they started work on what was going to become GoldenEye, they went back to Dalton. However, by that time, Dalton was in his... Late 40. He said he felt he was too old for the character. He had probably gotten out of shape while he was doing it. And And also, he had other jobs he was doing. And let's face it, he didn't want to do the work to get back into shape. I'm sure he could have stepped back into it, but he would have had to do what Harrison Ford did before he did this last year. He had to work out for a whole year to get back into shape for that thing, you know. He had other jobs. It's not like he he needed to work. He respectfully declined to come back, which led, of course to Barbara and Michael turning to somebody that almost got the Bond job before Dolph won Pierce Brosnan, which is where we're going to take this up with the next episode. For those people who say, oh, Dalton almost killed the franchise. Not not true. true. MGM almost killed the franchise. Yes. And you will definitely see a distinct sea change 
starting with the next episode, in the tone of the Bond films. Because it seems like MGM has a very clear idea that they want to go back to the Laffy Fun Bond. The Roger Moore Bond. The Roger Moore Bond. Although it's funny because, despite the fact that Pierce Brosnan is more happy-jokey fun, the Bond kill count goes way up in his films. He seems to combine all of the elements of mm-hmm. the three major Bonds that went before him. Connery, Moore, and Dalton. Right. And I think that was his genius at playing the role. He could throw off a quip like Sean Connery, but he was almost as tough, but not quite as Dalton. Because, right. let's face it, he was a little bit too pretty. There's another podcaster who once said that he could never get into the Dalton Bonds because Dalton looks like a goof. Uh-uh. No, no. Dalton looks like he yeah, could kick your ass. Okay, yeah. Try to tell him Dalton's Bond to his face right. that he's a goof. Yeah. And he show you how much of a goof. I think that Dalton's Bond, particularly during Lessons to Kill, could pretty much take any other Bond. We've already chewed these guys ears off a lot. And we apologize for the extra length, I think, considering that there's only two Dalton yeah. films. And considering the fact that we love this era of Bond so much. And we feel it is so underrated. I was so happy when I went to see The Living Daylights in the theaters. I was yeah. like, oh my God, thank you for bringing James Bond I remember, back. I think I remember when I saw it in the theaters in Long Island, I turned to the person I saw it with and I said, there's a bit of Patrick McGowan in him. That very clipped way of dialogue yeah. that Dalton has. And it's just, it's just marvelous seeing a Bond that is true to the books. And I felt that if they had been able to go along with their plans mm-hmm. and make more James Bond movies with Timothy Dalton, just like George Lazenby, everybody hated him for the longest time. Yeah. And it's only been, in what, like the last 10 years or yeah. so that people have been looking at his performance and saying, he wasn't that bad, he was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Well, now I think that Dalton, because for the longest time, not the critics, critics like Dalton. Yeah. It was the average moviegoer was saying, oh, I don't like him as Bond. I don't well, like I think you made a valid point about the fact that he must have scared the shit out of people. Oh, yeah. Because he was, even in Living Daylights, when he was a much softer character, mm. he was still dead on ruthless. Right. Because you got to remember, you had practically a generation that grew up mm-hmm. knowing no other Bond except for Roger Moore. You remember how generic looking the, the posters were for Living Daylights? Yeah. The whole ad campaign. It was just this glamour photo of Timothy Dalton with his gun. Yeah. Getting on his bad side is the most dangerous place yeah. to be. That was something that was done by a consultant who was called in, who was trying to reposition Bond more as a hip thing. The thing about those old school Roger Moore posters with all those like things going on in the background in front behind. Well, that him. was a leftover from the Connery era. That was a leftover well, yeah. from the Connery era. But the thing is, it was distinctive. It stood out. Yeah. Whereas Timothy Dalton holding his gun blended in with everything yeah, else. Yeah, it was that very season. generic. Because I like them old school Bond posters where you see all the different yeah. elements in the back going on. So. Before we get into the administrative, let's rate these films. Well, I think we both agree that they're both good films. Oh, yeah. I would definitely put Living Daylight's Head and Shoulders above License to Kill. I think License to Kill is very, very flawed. I still think, though, that I'd watch that more than I would watch half of Morris' output. I wouldn't put Living Daylight's head and shoulders above Mm -hmm. it. I'd put his shoulders above it. Okay. License to Kill is, and like we pointed out, it suffers from Carrie Lowell's awful performance and no real good henchmen, not like we had in The Living Daylights with Necro. We had, yeah. Yeah. Look at the group of villains we had in Living Daylights. Robert Davi almost wins the day. Yeah. Almost carries it for everybody else, but he's not on screen all the time. And we know that Benicio Del Toro has become a great actor, but in those scenes when he's 22 years old, fresh out of college. Not so much. And it's a more linear, straightforward plot than The Living Daylights, which actually, once you get into the whole thing with the Afghan Mm -hmm. and the trading the diamonds for the opium, for the wet, it gets a little bit muddled there. You really have to sit and say, okay, what's going on? It's a really complicated plot. But they're still worth better than half of Roger Moore's output. And when 
when we return to Gilt Edge Bonds, we'll be starting the next era, because it'll be ten years later, and time for the reign of Brosnan. Pierce Brosnan. So... Which should be interesting, because I don't think you like Pierce Brosnan as much as I do. Brosnan is one of those bonds where he started out incredibly strong. You know why? Brosnan has so much goodwill yeah, right. that this was a role that when he was back on Remington Steel, people had said, yeah. oh, well, he would make a great James Bond. I think he yeah. had such support from the public behind mm-hmm. him before he even right. shot any film. He starts off very strong, but each film after that first film is worse than the one before it. Mm, okay. It, to the point where we get to that dire mess that is Die Another Day. Mm, okay. Which should have ended at about the 15-minute mark. So, the administrative, I guess, I gotta do. Yep. Well, you heard the news at the top of the hour. At least for the next month, if you want to contact us, you can do a number of things. You could leave a message on our Podomatic board, which is at betterinthedark.podomatic.com. You can join our message board. You can still join our message board after we make our big move, which is at betterinthedark. Because it'll still be there. .proboards.com. Mm-hmm. We insisted on that. Starting August 30th. You can contact us at Better in the Dark. That's right, Better in the Dark, not Better in the Dark, at earth-2.net. So until then, you can, of course, contact us at Better in the Dark. That's Better, the letter N, the Dark, at gmail.com. But again, I would advise you to, you know, start visiting the Earth 2 yeah. site right now so you get familiar with it. They got a lot of great stuff on there. Dread Media. Like we were mentioning. Our good friend Des. We've talked in the past about World's Finest Podcast. We've talked in the past about Bigger on the Inside. Mike just started one with his friend Nicolette called Mike and Nikki Make a Podcast, which is a more of a general pop culture podcast. She sent me a very nice uh, message on Nicolette. The, uh, yeah, I got to answer her later on this evening. That's I, not, I haven't gotten her. nothing from them. Really? I guess they don't love me. They love you, Tom. <laughs> but you didn't sign up on their message board like I did. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. <laughs> ah, see, okay. folks? See, when you join up on message boards, people like you. Yes. People answer you when you yes. send them nice messages. You get replies. That's our Timothy Dalton Bond and episode. We hope that it was as much fun for you as it was for us. And we took a long time. That's because we are so passionate about this period in Bond history. And like I said earlier, you know, I think it's justified because it's just the two films. It's, that's all we're going to get from Timothy Dalton. And by no means should he be overlooked. Because I know I, got, I hear it all the time from people that say, oh, they don't want to bother with Timothy Dalton. Dalton, because they like Roger Moore, or they like this new guy, Daniel Craig. Boy, and of course, Dalton almost killed the franchise. Screw you. Boy, We've already explained this to you. And boy, where do we get to Daniel Craig? Where do you hear what I think of him? Uh-oh. <laughs> We've only got two films with him, too. Well, that's it. We've only got two. We've one, had one really cool one film. really good. And one that stinks. That stinks like a dead skunk in the middle of the road. The one that we proudly refer to as Quantum Aboard. I mean, Salas. I mean, I mean Salas. Yes. So, until next time, this has been Derek Ferguson. And this has been the incredibly informative Thomas DJ. (laughs) And no matter where you go, no matter what you do, no matter what Colombian drug lord you happen to fly down to meet with because he killed you. Because you got a Russian cellist that's trying to assassinate you, you. but she's really not because she's your girlfriend. Go see that movie. Go see that movie. Good night. Thank you. Good night. There's two million dollars in that suitcase. I'll split it with you. You want it. You keep it, old buddy.
but a terrible waste of money. You've been listening to Better in the Dark, featuring Thomas E.J. and Derek Ferguson. Special thanks go out to Michael David Sims of Earth2.net, Samurai and Big Willie of The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Movies, Michael Bailey of Views from the Long Box, Eric Frome and the members of the Better in the Dark message board at betterinthedark.proboards.com. Better in the Dark would like to say it was 100% fun, but it doesn't believe in being untruthful. Older episodes of the show are archived at bitd.lipson.com. Send all comments, praise, hate mail, and pipe bombs to Better in the Dark at gmail.com. That's better, the letter N, the dark, at gmail.com. Please vote for us on Podcast Alley. Better in the Dark is a conspiracy production presentation. All material copyright Thomas DJ and Derek Ferguson. Until next time, remember that many solutions to having your money bloodied involve some form of laundering. Forget the ladies for once, Bond.